All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Welcome everybody. Back on the 4th of July, we actually published a video talking about things you needed to know about the Declaration of Independence. We did something of a deep dive into all of the different reasons that were mentioned for why the United States was separating from Great Britain. Well, we had Justin in our community chat came forward and said, hey, would you mind doing something similar with respect to the Constitution? We said, that sounds like a great idea. We don't think we're going to be able to do this justice in just one podcast episode. So we decided to go over a couple of things that we're going to talk about today. One is talking about why do you even need a written Constitution in the first place? And this may seem obvious, but it's actually really unique all the way up until when the Constitution was ratified. This was not the norm within, within history. But the other thing that we really want to get to is we want to talk about the most, I would argue, deliberately misrepresented portions of the Constitution, not to mention at least two. We might talk, we might talk about a couple more, but at least two amendments that were absolutely horrible and still exist within the United States Constitution. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. On another note, if you joined us for a Tuesday's episode where we reacted to the sound of freedom and are interested in viewing the whole interview uh, with Victor Marks, you can do so on the Making the Argument YouTube channel. I'll leave a link in the description of this show for that. We've had some great conversations going on in our community chat, and if you haven't joined already, I hope you'll go down to the link in the description, click that link, join us there. We'd love to get to know you and have a conversation with you about this topic after the show. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. My beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, is not here today, but will be returning. I, I hope. We all hope. We do hope. All right, we do hope. Tina doesn't hope. care about the Constitution. That's no. what it is, yeah. <laughs> you, everyone like queen of the bees know that you are, you are taking her absence. She might be in the chat. The taking chat. her absence is a demonstration. Of her lack of loyalty for the United States Constitution. No, she, she's she got things to work on today, uh, but she is sorely missed. Of course, our political prognosticator and resident historian. This should be a good episode for you, Christian. This is. Based on our um, chats before we started going live, I feel like the, there'll be some disagreement on a couple things, too. Oh, I have a feeling Christian and I might. I, I don't I don't think we're going to yell at each other. No, 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 no. Not like that, but I'm more like. I'm just kidding. I'm totally going to yell. More at like you. the typical, I'm going to be like hardcore dooming and Nick is going to be explaining why we shouldn't be dooming. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't know. It, it'll be an interesting in, an interesting episode. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. It is a pleasure to be here. And I got to tell you today, Hamilton, if you weren't entirely sure, or if you thought the only reason why we call you the good Hamilton, suggesting that perhaps 
Alexander Hamilton is not as good yeah. as some people think he is. It is not just about central banking. We're we're going to give some other reasons today, and and we're not going to. I'm not. I'm not. Well, I'm not going to. Christian probably will. I'm not going to totally dump on Hamilton, but I'm going to kind of dump on Hamilton. Not this Hamilton. Alexander, not the good Hamilton. My, for anyone who's interested, <laughs> my middle name is actually Alexander. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't hold so, it against me. So let, let's get let's get right into it. All right. Created in 1787 and ratified in 1789, the United States Constitution has stood the test of time. But interestingly enough, an overwhelming majority of Americans, I would argue, don't really understand the structure of the Constitution, why it was created the way it is. In fact, we've had many. Ruth Bader Ginsburg once uh, said in an interview that if she had to advise someone on how to create a constitution for their country, she would not use the United States Constitution. She would use a constitution more like that in South Africa. And given South Africa's current um, well, current difficulties, we can just say that we're, we're glad uh, Ruth didn't win the argument on that one. But here's, here's what we're going to go over. We're going to go over why does the constitution exist in the first place? We're going to go a kind of a brief overview of the, the various sections. We're going to really hone in on, on the portions that are, you know, critical, not to say that, you know, they're not all important, but we're going to hone in on the portions, the articles that are critical to the establishment of the federal government and what that actually means. Um, and then we're going to, we're going to go through the bill of rights. And then we're going to talk a little bit about amendments 11 through 27. And our, our main focus is going to be to really hone in on those parts of the constitution that are the most contentious, Right, the, the, we're going to talk about things like the three-fifths compromise. Did the Constitution really say that, that black Americans were only three-fifths of the person? Is that, was that really the intent of the three-fifths compromise? Right? Does the general welfare clause you know, or the interstate commerce clause convey to the federal government all kinds of wide-sweeping authority? We're going to talk about all of those things, and we're going to equip you, I hope, with the arguments that you need to be able to, again, respond to what I, I think are some of the most deliberate misrepresentations of the Constitution. So let's go ahead and start off with why do we have a constitution in the first place? Here's the answer in one sentence. Because the founding fathers studied the history of Rome. Oh, okay. All right. So there's, well, let, let's look at first. We, we brought, I, I brought up this interesting argument. This is, comes from cost, constitutionfacts.com. And they argue that the, the reason why this debate started on whether or not we were going to have a federal government was the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. Here's what they list them are. Each state only had one vote in Congress, regardless of size. Congress didn't have the power to tax or to regulate foreign and interstate commerce. That doesn't sound like a weakness to me, but there was no executive branch to enforce any acts passed by Congress. There was no national court system. Amendments to the Articles of Confederation required a unanimous vote and laws required a 913 majority to pass in Congress. So what they're arguing is that the, the United States, right, really was, was, was not a thing because the Articles of Confederation essentially um, provided such a, a loose and, um, in their argument, ineffective confederation of these sovereign states, right? That's the most important thing to remember right off the bat here is we're talking about 13 independent states, right? They, they didn't see themselves necessarily as being one country, um, they, they certainly had a, a great deal in common. They had fought the Revolutionary War together. They had you know, declared their uh, independence together, but they still largely saw themselves as independent states with some sort of like loose alliance. And the reason why is because they were very concerned 
about losing that individual sovereignty at the state level. They didn't want some sort of centralized authority that was going to reign over them and dictate the internal operations of their states, right? They felt like we just fought that. We don't want to create it now on our own continent. However, there, there were problems with respect to the states being able to not only coordinate with one another, uh, but also to be able to provide for um, a, a decent defense from any sort of external threats, but also solidifying the, the unity between the individual states um, in, in, in order to be able to achieve what, what many of them thought was going to be kind of the future destiny of the United States. And that was something that went far beyond the individual 13 colonies, the individual 13 states, and what was going to be the process for being able to, to govern uh, collective action between these entities. So you had two different groups. Go ahead and scroll down here a little bit. Two main groups that were kind of talking about this, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Now, I think most people that are even remotely interested in the United States Constitution have heard of the Federalist Papers, which was a series of, I think it was 85 articles written under Publius. There was three authors. There was Alexander Hamilton, there was John Jay, and there was James Madison. And the two primary authors were Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. And what these letters were was uh, their attempt, right? They, they had attended the Constitutional Convention and understand that the original constitutional convention was not organized to set up a new constitution. It was just meant to address what, what people generally saw as inherent problems within the articles of confederation. And the convention actually went beyond what its stated objectives were. Now, simply because that convention got together and said, here's a constitution, we think you should go for it, doesn't mean that it went into effect, right? Each individual state had to ratify it. And so Every state was going through this own internal debate within their respective legislatures to vote whether or not they were going to adopt this federal constitution. And so Madison, Hamilton, Jay were among people that were trying to convince the state legislatures to adopt the, the federal constitution. And then the anti-federalists, which you compose the people you look here, it says during the push for ratification, many of the articles in opposition were written under pseudonyms such as Brutus, Sentinel, federal farmer. But some famous revolutionary figures such as Patrick Henry came out publicly against the constitution. So remember Patrick Henry, right? He was the guy within the Virginia house of Burgesses came right out and said, give me Liberty, give me death. He was a, a, a main proponent of Virginia signing the declaration of independence, breaking away and fighting against um, England, came right out and opposed it. So the Federalists were essentially making an argument. And if you look, if you look at just about every Federalist paper, what they are doing is they are assuring people and specifically people with anti-Federalist sentiment, they are assuring them that this new federal constitution is limited in nature and is not going to be used as a tool to oppress the individual states. They keep trying to, to assure them that they've put all of these protections in place in order to make sure that the federal government stays within a very narrow field of responsibility, right? The anti-federalists are coming back essentially saying, don't care what you say, the federal government, once we give them authority, especially to do things like lay and collect taxes, once we give them things like the necessary and proper clause, the supremacy clause, these things are going to be abused in order to infringe on individuals and states' rights. Right? That was the anti-federalist argument. And so both sides were presenting it. Now, the important thing to remember, the important thing to remember, 
the Federalists were not making an argument that, well, no, we, we want this federal government to be powerful and we want them to have all kinds of control and we want them to be able to engage in this sort of overwhelming collective action in order to accomplish. Nobody, neither the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists, were making an argument for what we needed was an incredibly powerful and centralized federal government which was going to be dictating policy to all of the states. None of them were making that argument. But there was one man in particular that his intention was to do exactly that. I think that is a fair assessment. And so do you want to get into a little bit with Alexander Hamilton oh, on this? Oh, you mean the, the traitorous, <laughs> they, they, we should be building statues of Aaron Burr everywhere. Um, oh I, my God. For those of you who don't know, Aaron Burr is the man that killed Alexander Hamilton within a duel. <laughs> and, and by the way, Aaron Burr was also not a great guy. No, Aaron just... Burr was not a great guy, but he 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 provided a great service to the people of the United States. Oh, my God. Um, I'm serious about that. Alexander Hamilton, wanted, Alexander Hamilton wanted the Holy Roman Empire imported to the United States. <laughs> he And that is not an exaggeration. He... I read Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. I actually had to read it in college. Um... Hamilton is the one guy who gets up there repeatedly and it's like, you know what we really need? We need an elected king. Yeah. That's what we really need. We just fought a war against the British crown, but you, you know, I mean, we, we need one of our own. And, and part of me wants to be like, and he was all too willing to, to fill the void. Like I, I just, <laughs> you look at Hamilton's actions. The guy gave us a central bank. Mm -hmm. The guy advocated, he wanted a king to be able to appoint state governors he he wanted to transform the United States into its own monarchy. Yeah, he, he wanted without he wanted, telling people. Yeah, he that. didn't he didn't want to call him a king. And and here's my biggest problem with Alexander Hamilton. You you would think it would be the the central bank, um, and, and that certainly is probably my it's in my top two most things I despise about Alexander Hamilton's uh, philosophy. But honestly, my my biggest problem with him is the same arguments he made in the Federalist paper, trying to assure everyone that of course the federal government is never going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. As soon as he had a federal government, he was the one pushing to do X, Y, and Z. That was the vibe that I got when, when I was reading the Federalist papers also in college that like over and over again, I would, I would read each of these individual papers and I would be like, you know, Madison is coming across as genuinely yeah. interested in this project because he thinks that it's a good thing and he's he's not hiding his opinions or anything. He's sharing them openly. Hamilton, I always felt like that that everything that he was writing was like two faced, that he was that he was lying through his teeth and that he wasn't being honest with what he actually was trying to push for. And the reason I felt like that was because I I knew what he was pushing in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I mean that's a whole nother discussion for another day, but but like the reason that I say all this, all these mean things about Alexander Hamilton, the reason that I hold him in such low regard, is because I view people like him as basically being the type of people that Patrick Henry warned us about. Yeah, and I I feel like that in some ways Madison was kind of duped. I'll be completely honest. If the founding fathers, if the individual state legislatures of the thirteen newly independent former colonies had like a crystal ball where they could see into the future almost 150 years later and see where the United States is today in 2023, I don't think there's a single state in the union that would have voted to ratify the Constitution. I, I think you're I think you're correct. Uh, there, there may have been one or two exceptions. Um, another thing Hamilton really pushed for very hard within the, the centralized banking and whatnot was basically the federalization of the war debts from the individual states because he thought it would be a way to unify the states. And by unify the states, it really meant 
if the federal government now comes in and goes, hey, we're going to take all your debt and now this is federal debt, it, it's, it's more of a form of subservience. It, it wasn't just unification out of the, of the you know, you know. So, no, no, I, I, I get it. Like, it, he does not just have altruistic motivations. But, like, I, I look at, I said that I was going to be a, a, a bit dooming this episode and that we might have some pushback. So, part of me feels like that Hamilton was right in his in his motivations. He was on the right side in the sense that not not that what he was pushing for was mo was like morally correct, but he won out. He absolutely won out. It was yeah. not Patrick Henry that won out. It, it no, wasn't. I, I saw I saw a debate once. Um, it was like an Oxford style debate, and they were the proposition was is did Hamilton or Jefferson essentially win the, the long-term politically was, in their day Jefferson, Jefferson won. won but long long term Hamilton yeah. absolutely won this well, and Jefferson actually predicted it right Jefferson believed that that it, it is the it is in the nature of of governments to to grow at the expense of individual liberty um and and that was why th there's a lot of people that will probably look at some of the arguments again in the anti-federalist papers and think well this is this is kind of extreme of course this could never happen well we're going to go over some of the things that it has happened <laughs> and that that especially some of the supreme court decisions where they've thought they've had perfect constitutional justification for it so Again, the, the point was was to come together, amend the Articles of Confederation. Madison, who, by the way, I represent James Madison's district in the Virginia House of Delegates. I consider it an incredible honor. Um, there are some people that argue that it, it's inappropriate to call Madison the father of the Constitution because his original plan actually is not what was selected. However, he had done a great deal of, of work on laying down kind of the base plan. They accepted various compromises. Keep in mind that there was a lot of different debate. Alexander Hamilton essentially wanted elected kings. He he wanted a um I think I think originally he wanted like elected for life, right? He elected a king for life. And and so this was the reason why Christian says this is a lot like the Holy Roman Empire is because if you look at the way the Holy Roman Empire was established, you did have at varying at various degrees, you had a election of the monarch and then you had all of these principalities within the Holy Roman Empire with varying degrees of, of kind of power and influence, but it really was like this hodgepodge. It bared no resemblance to what we really have in the United States. Um, but perhaps one of the, the biggest, the, the, I would say the two biggest things that came out of the Constitution with respect to the establishment of the federal government was the separation of powers. So that's making sure that there was a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. Please understand something. That has become a lot more common today. It, it, is, it was revolutionary back then. And, and even today, you can't really, I would, I would suggest, you can't really argue that parliamentarian democracies have true separation of powers There's because no their thing. chief executive is essentially the head legislator. It's a creature of, of the legislative branch. Scalia yeah. actually had an interview, not an interview, he had um, a hearing that he spoke to in Congress and I want to say either 2015 or 2016. Yeah, it was great. And um, it's made the rounds on the internet o over the years. And Scalia talks about this. He says, when I go to Europe and and I I speak to 
other jurists there or other politicians in Europe and we're talking about separation of powers, what I find out is that we're only talking about the separation between the legislative branch and the judicial branch. There is no concept outside of just a handful of states in Europe. There is no concept of a separation between yeah. the executive branch and the legislative branch. The executive branch is always a creature of the legislative branch. There's no disagreement there. If the prime minister disagrees with with, with you know his or her majority in parliament, they're not going to be in office for, for much yeah. longer. Go look at what happened to Liz Truss, right? Yeah. Um, it, like, so... The reason that he's he's giving it's a it's a fantastic interview. Um, I keep saying interview. It's almost like it's it's a it's hearing. Like testimony. Yes, yeah. it's a, it's a testimony to Congress. It's a fantastic testimony. I highly encourage people to go to go watch it. But but what Scalia is trying to get to is that there's something unique about the American political system that at the time of its forming, there was no other similar system on no. the planet that was like it, and even today. It stands out among most other republics and democracies in the world in its in its formation in that we have three separate um, co-equal branches of government. In fact, there's um there's a line from Federalist 51 that I want to read off um, where Madison is explaining, um, you know, why it's so important for um, for, for the separation of powers. And he says um in a single republic, all the power surrendered by the people is submitted to the administration of a single government. He's referring to a unitary system right there or a parliamentary system. And then he says, and the user um and the usurpations are guarded against by the division of the government into distinct and separate departments. In the compound republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments. And that he's referring to the state and federal. Yeah. And then the, por um, the portion allotted to each subdivided among distinct and separate departments. Hence, a double security arises to the rights of the people. The different governments will control each other and at the same time will each be controlled by itself. So what he's referring there is that the way that we're going to guard, guard liberty in the United States is that we're going to have not a unitary system like they had in France when they had their revolution yeah. and it turned into a bloody disaster where it was like everything's run through Paris and it's just Paris imposing its way. France to this day is still a unitary system of government. Yeah. They've been like that since the French Revolution, which is funny because before the French Revolution, it was actually power was very decentralized. The king was not actually an absolute monarch. Yeah. He had powerful nobles beneath him. But anyway, point is, is that in the United States, we don't have a unitary system, right? We have states and we have the federal government. So that's one way that liberty can be protected. And then within governments, you have the division of power between the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. That's a second way that you can protect individual yeah. liberty. Now, there's a tragedy in that, in that first off, that first tool disappeared in 1865 mm -hmm. just completely gone now states states have been neutered by the federal government oh also disappeared when one of these amendments came along that we're, we're going to talk, talk about, about later today so i think that um I, I think that that um madison's first guard of individual liberty has really fallen by the wayside in the united states over yeah. the past 250 ish years the second one which is the division of powers between the states. Nick, I know that, that you think that th this is like, in some ways, kind of like the last line. I, I think that that's also kind of slipping by the wayside. Well, I, I think, respects. so look, I, I, <clears throat> I, so I agree with you that there, there's, there's two levels here that he was talking about. Let's, let's go to the next, uh, next article here. Um, there, there's, there's two things that were important about this. One was again, the separation of powers within the federal government itself. The other was the separation of powers between the states and the federal government. 
you can eat, you can even go in to express how the Constitution also, um, you know, guarantees to all states a republican form of government. So they were essentially trying to replicate that anybody that wanted to be a state within the United States had to replicate this this relatively similar system between a legislative branch and executive branch and a judicial branch. Now, it wasn't it wasn't required. The federal government obviously has bicameral legislature, which means you have a Senate and you have a House. That was not required of the states. Nebraska, I think, is the one state that has a unicameral house. They don't have a house in the Senate. They have one. They have just one um, legislative body. Now, w- what's important to understand about this is just what uh, Christian said. James Madison essentially like locked himself in his library for over a year, just pouring over different examples and historical documents looking at how, how does a Republic survive beyond a, a, a very small city state. And it's not through democracy. Yeah. And, Go and, read Madison's <laughs> notes on the, on the constitutional convention in Philadelphia and, and see what the founding fathers had to say about democracy. Yeah. They, they, they were very, they were very skeptical of this idea that you were just going to essentially outsource violence to a democratically elected entity that was going to, Oh, well, if we've got a, if we've got 50% plus one, we can impose what we want. That, that is not the sort of system that they wanted. It's not the sort of system they wanted to foster because all of them were, were fairly dedicated with perhaps the exception of Hamilton and a couple others. All of them were fairly de- dedicated to this idea of being very, very skeptical of government power. And so, now, if they were going to create an entity, right, the states were going to create an entity, and that entity was the federal government. I, I think nowadays so many people have this belief that the federal government is supreme and the states just kind of exist for whatever. The states preceded the federal government. The states created the federal government for the overall benefit and protection of the states, the states, the, the federal government did not create the states because it would make it easier to manage a, a large country, right? That, that's an important distinction to make. Madison looked at this from the standpoint of republics, when they grow to a particular size, when they're still small and they're, they're uh, relatively um, you know, homogenous, which is to say that all the people living kind of have a, a shared um, culture, a shared history, uh, a shared conviction with respect to the role of government. The, these republics tend to do fairly well, but then when they grow and they expand through success or whatever else it is, and they get to a certain point where there, there's people feel like they're being ruled by a distant body, it tends to break down into fracture and division. And so one of Madison's main questions was, how do we expand as a country? Because even within the even within uh, the the individual states at that time, there was a lot of cultural differences, a lot of economic differences between New York and South Carolina, right? And so it was all about how do we take the things that do unify us, that that do that will allow us to flourish and expand and be able to defend ourselves. Because at this stage, they were still very much worried about the UK coming back or some other foreign power from Europe coming in and, and dominating certain sections. So how do they do that? And that was the whole idea of the federalist system. States have certain responsibilities. The federal government has certain responsibilities. And what Madison was adamant about was that the federal government's responsibilities were limited and enumerated, right? So what does that mean? It means they wrote down federal government this is your lane. You go outside of this lane and now you're violating the boundaries. You're violating the compact between the federal government and the states. You, you've now usurped your authority. 
right? So let's look at what let's let's look at the Constitution. So now we we've got an idea of what that was about. It was the Federalist component. It was also the separation, the division of powers. What he, what he believed from studying this was the more power was concentrated in a single entity, the more likely it was to become tyrannical. So you had to have an executive branch. You had to have a legislative branch. You had to have a ju- judiciary, a judicial branch. Those had to be separate. Then, in order to be able to expand the republic out, you had to have individual states which had a similar system set up with similar rules and guidelines. And then the federal government stayed within its lane and the states stayed within their lane. And that's, and that's how you are going to, to have this kind of symbiosis between states and the federal government in order to prevent tyranny. That was the objective. The last point, Nick, is that um, the reason that it needs to be written down, I said it near the beginning of this episode that, that, you know, well, well, the reason we have a written constitution was because the founding fathers studied Rome. The Roman Republic did not have a written constitution. It had an unwritten constitution, similar to the UK today. It's an unwritten constitution. And at the time, there, there really was no written constitutions in the world. There were unwritten constitutions. The UK had an unwritten constitution as well. The founding fathers looked at the Roman Republic as a model for the United States in many ways. That's also why we get a lot of symbolism from Rome. Yeah. And also a lot of our early American architecture in Washington, D.C. is influenced by classical Rome. And the reason they did that instead of Greece was because they wanted a Republican system of government, not a democracy, right? But they looked at Rome and they looked at the crisis of the Roman Republic near near the beginning of the first century, well, first century BC, um, shortly before Christ. And they saw like all the civil wars, the political chaos, the rise of Caesar, the rise of Augustus, the death of the Republic and the creation of of, an, of the Roman Prince Empire. And, and they, they said, you know, well, we don't want that. We want to keep the Republican system of government. So one of the the flaws of the Roman system, as beautifully crafted as it had been over the centuries, was nothing was written down. And if nothing is written down, over time, things can be changed or ignored. Arbitrarily. Yes, arbitrarily so. So they needed to, to codify it on paper in order for it to be written in plain English for everybody to see. Here's what the ultimate law is for, for our country. When Rocky Top Tom says, y'all, please discuss your opinions on the irony of the founders attempting to create a decent form of government. But today, our entire government is corrupted no matter the checks and balances. Rocky, we are going to talk about that. We're going to get into depth on why we think that has actually transpired and, and what the problem is and what some potential antidotes to it are. So thank you very much for the question. So if we now kind of understand that this was the general... the the. The reason why the people wanted the federal, the reason the Federalists wanted the Constitution is because they thought that there needed to be greater unification and there needed to be a process whereby certain powers were handed over to a, a federal entity and these would largely handle things like um, international trade and, and a lot of it was, was, was rooted in the whole concept of defense. Because fighting the war, and, and George Washington saw this firsthand, right? I mean, here he is. The, 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 the colonies had declared independence, become states, individual sovereign states, and it was almost impossible to be able to levy taxes and coordinate military action. It was incredibly difficult to do that under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, so it made it very, very difficult for any sort of central authority to be able to act. So the idea was is that, okay, we still want to lim- limit central authority, but we do need to give it some more powers. That was the Federalist argument. The Anti-Federalist argument was we pretty much don't care what you do. The more you provide an entity that's centralized, it's going to grow and it's going to expand. It's going to expand at the expense of the individual states. But 
They got through the ratification process. The Federalists essentially won the debate. The states ratified the Constitution. Somebody in the, in the comments actually brought up some issues with respect to people missing from the delegations. Um, uh, understood, but ultimately those various state legislatures through the ratification process did all eventually ratify the Constitution. So here's what we have. So you have the preamble. And, and the, the way to think about the preamble is this is kind of like a generalized uh, statement of beliefs. It, it's establishing the purpose. It's not the same necessarily as like legally binding components of the Constitution. It's more about, again, a, a, it, it's not purely poetic, but think of it as kind of like a philosophical groundwork for why the rest of what the Constitution is going to talk about exists. So the preamble, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our pros uh, <laughs> posterity, or is it prosperity? Yeah, uh, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. So the way this is broken down, I thought this was a pretty good breakdown. The preamble defines the following six goals. To form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and boy, are we going to talk about that, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Then there's uh, seven articles. So Article 1 outlines the legislative branch. Article 2, the executive branch. Article 3, the judicial branch. Article 4 talks about defines the rules for and relationship between the states. Article 5 states the rules and procedures for amending the Constitution. Okay, now this is important because a lot of people have this idea when you hear this concept like, oh, the Constitution is a living document. It is living in the sense that there is a process whereby you can amend it. Unfortunately, a lot of people, especially within the judicial system, have adopted this idea that, oh, well, the Constitution and the meaning of the words, it, it adjusts over time based off of various social norms. And, and the job of the Supreme Court is to interpret and decide what those norms mean. Garbage. Absolute, unmitigated garbage. And let me give you a perfect example of this. Let me give you a perfect example. Of this. If you really believe that a legal document, and that is what the Constitution is, if you really believe that the legal document can, can merely change meaning over time based off of societal norms, okay, great. We have a mortgage, okay? I'm the bank. You're the, you're the person that uh, I'm lending to. We have a legal document. That legal document is your mortgage, and that outlines the conditions of the mortgage. and what you're, I come in one day, and I decide, you know what? Your mortgage now just doubled. What, what do you mean it just doubled? It's right there in black and white that it's a certain amount. No, no, it's no. It's a living mortgage. It's a living mortgage. It's a living mortgage and it adapts over time. And well, who gets to decide what, who gets to decide how this thing is alive? I do, right? Nobody, nobody believed that when we were actually establishing that. And nobody really believes that about living, about doc, legal documents in general. Nobody. It is only living in the sense that there is a process for amending the Constitution. So if you believe that there is a necessary change within the Constitution, you go through the amendment process. Because the last thing you want is five unelected judges getting to determine what new social norms mean. Why have a legislature then? Honestly, why have a legislature, why have a body of elected representatives that are supposed to go to Washington, D.C., in order to make certain decisions about what the people want, why do any of that if five unelected judges can just say, we've decided that the language means something different now? It is absurd on its face, and nobody really believes that's the appropriate way 
to interpret legal documents unless it happens to be interpreted in a way that they favor at that moment and they know they could never get what they wanted through the legislature. This was, I think, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest shortcomings of our Constitution was the founding fathers who drafted it and who subsequently drafted the Bill of Rights wrote down no such mechanism through which disputes over interpretation or language can be rectified. And eventually, the Supreme Court simply gave itself that power. Yes. And yeah. that was a terrible mistake. On To be completely honest, what the Founding Fathers should have done was had something where it was like, states, if there's a disagreement over interpreting a part yeah. of the Constitution, states get to decide what that is. And you need a majority or a supermajority well, or something like that in order for a state to determine, no, that's not constitutional. Well, and this is where we'll talk about the, the whole idea of... Uh, you know, Marbury versus Madison and Maryland versus McCullough, which kind of established this judicial supremacy over these questions, right? That was not written into the constitution. The, the Marshall court just kind of gave themselves that power. But then you had Jefferson, write The Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which actually provided a different mechanism for adjudicating these differences left in the red. It said a mortgage isn't the constitution. Yes, I'm, I'm aware. But they are both legal documents. And the point is, is to illustrate through example that if a legal document can be arbitrarily interpreted by five justices, right, which completely subverts every other process that we have within our system in order to determine what the people want. If what the people want is no longer determined even by a legislature now, it's just determined by five justices, that fits pretty neatly into the, the term judicial tyranny, right? That I don't think anybody wants that system. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, the left right now would not want this Supreme Court arbitrarily deciding what how the language has changed. I, I promise you, you don't want that. All right, so let's go to the next one here. Um, article, uh, what are we, six, declares that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Now, this is going to be very, very important to understand because when we get into things like the supremacy clause and the necessary and proper clause, all right, there are some people that have interpreted this as to say, well, if the Constitution says something, that's the whatever the federal government does is therefore the law of the land. Like, whoa, 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 just back off. That is not what this means. That is not what this means. What this means is that the Constitution, properly interpreted within its its you know powers, right, supersedes any sort of state law that would attempt to subvert it. It doesn't mean that the federal government can do whatever it's want because after all, it's, you know, it's, it's the federal government, right? Supremacy clause. No, it has to stay within its proper constitutional boundaries and limitations. If it supersedes that, it doesn't get to rely on the supremacy clause in order to justify whatever it does. And then finally, uh, we have Article 7 outlines the process for ratifying or approving the Constitution. So again, this was the process that the individual states had to go through in order to say yes we, we approve of this constitution. We want to be a part of it, et cetera. Then, then next we go into the Bill of Rights and the additional amendments. The Bill of Rights have obviously been the first 10 amendments to the constitution and the additional amendments, 11, amendments 11 through 27. So that's the constitution. All right. All right. Go to, go to the next, um, next thing here real quick. Where we're going to spend most of our time here, go ahead and scroll up. Actually, yeah, you can stay, you can stay right here. So um, our, section one, lays out the Congress, right? And it, and it establishes that we're going to have a House of Representatives that's a portion based off of population. And then we're going to have a Senate, which is each state gets equal representation within the Senate. So a lot of people now will come and say, well, the Senate is undemocratic. Yep. 
It is undemocratic with respect to individuals. It is not undemocratic with respect to state representation within that body. Because here is one of the things that you need to remember about the United States, which makes it unique in the world. The only other country that I would argue comes close to our model is probably Switzerland. Christian would argue Germany as well comes a little bit closer than most. Um, the Polish Constitution of 1793 was, I think it was 1793. I'm going to look this up real quick, actually. Um, well, yeah, I think that I think that was also in large part because of like Kosciuszko and others. But, anyways, it, it, that, yes. Oh, sorry, seventeen ninety one. It was the war of the the. Um, so the Polish Constitution of seventeen ninety one was heavily influenced by the United States, so much so that the uh, absolute powers of the absolutist powers of Europe thought that it was a danger. And Russia invaded Poland when they ratified that constitution. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Poles ended up losing that war and ended up completely losing their independence for 123 years. But there, there, there were early attempts to to model countries off the United States. Poland was, was yeah. Poland's constitution of, in 1791 was the second oldest written constitution in the world at yeah. the time. It just wasn't long lived, unfortunately. Yeah. But in today's world, you could say that Switzerland is is similar. Switzerland Switzerland is very decentralized, though. Yeah, I mean they they have four languages. Yeah. in their country, people forget Romanche. That's 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 the fourth one. But, but like, I mean. But the, the, I mean, the general point I'm trying to make is that our, our system is is truly unique in what we do. And like a lot mm. of people say, oh, we made the world safe for democracy and all these countries are free. OK, I'm, I'm not saying that they don't have democratic processes. I'm not saying that they don't have, in some cases, written constitutions. Oh, Switzerland has democratic but, processes. But the, but the mechanisms that we've put in place truly are unique to the United States. So the, the reason why it's, again, the takeaway from this is we are a republic of republics. Right. Please understand. If you don't properly understand that distinction, then the Senate will make no sense to you. All right. We states have a have a degree of sovereignty as their own individual republics and their participation within the federal process is the reason why they have equal representation. It's to be able to protect that state sovereignty. It's to be able to hopefully keep the federal government within its boundaries by the states flexing its own powers. Now we're going to talk about an amendment that gutted a lot of that, but that that's the reason why it exists. All right. So that, that sets up, like we all kind of understand that's, that's a legislative authority. Go down to, uh, our, uh, article one, section eight, because this is important. This lays out, right? The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imports, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. What does this mean? It means that for the first 130 years of of the republic, the federal government couldn't, couldn't constitutionally impose a federal income tax. It could impose taxes and duties on like foreign imports, it could levy some sort of obligations with respect to the various states, but the idea that it could text you as an individual wherever you move within the United States, that was not a thing. That, that actually required the passing of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. So these are, these are the enumerated powers all right, of Congress. Define d- briefly what you mean by enumerated. Enumerated means they wrote it down. <laughs> right? Enumerated means they said very specifically, and Madison makes this argument, and so does Hamilton. They all make this argument when they're trying to justify the the federal government. The, the anti-federalists are com- coming in and saying the federal government is going to assume authorities that don't belong to it. 
right? I think it was Madison that came back and said, no, the federal federal authority is limited and enumerated. State authority is not. Like the federal government at this stage is not addressing state power. It's just addressing the power of the federal government. It, it, you don't, that doesn't even happen until you get into like the 13th amendment, the 14th amendment, 14th the incorporation the doctrine. You don't even get into any of that stuff. It used to be for the majority, not the majority now, about half of American history. Okay. The bill of rights were restrictions on federal power, not state power. It wasn't until not just the 14th amendment, but, but more of the incorporation doctrine where all of a sudden limitations on federal power were now translated as limitations on state power as well. That's why so many state constitutions actually specify limitations on their own state's power. All right. So it's important to understand that. So they could borrow money on the credit of the United States, regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. This is this is sometimes referred to as the interstate commerce clause. We're going to get to this one. Believe me. Um, Establish uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. Coin money, regulate the value thereof in foreign coin. Man, they did a bang up job at that one. Oh, yeah. They've done a great job (laughs) regulating the value thereof. Uh, Provide for punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. Okay, why did the federal government have that power? Because they had the power to determine what the currency was. Establish post offices and post roads to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to the respective writings and discoveries. Think of this as like patents, copyrights. Uh, To constitute uh, tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. So... The, the point there was that we're going to have a separate judicial branch, but then the Congress was also able to come up with other federal courts that could be that could be utilized as necessary to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal and make rules concerning captures on land and water. <sighs> Congress isn't interested in that one. If you want to know if you want to know what part of the Constitution that I think Congress has just completely, completely given up their authority, it's this one. This one right here. They have essentially handed off authority to the executive branch to go and conduct war whenever it feels like it. And the only thing Congress does in response is choose whether or not they're going to provide adequate funding in the budget. You want to know the last time we declared war? World War II. Sure, sure glad we haven't been involved in any war since then, except, of course, for Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Panama, Iraq, Afghanistan. Iraq again. Yeah, Iraq again. <laughs> I mean, we, we all understand. We all understand that the executive branch needs certain authority in order to address imminent threats to the United States. Addressing an imminent threat to the United States is not the same thing as deploying tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of troops over the longest conflict in U.S. history without a declaration of war. So Congress, as a combat vet, screw you, man. Seriously. This was ridiculous. The idea that Congress wants to sit there and, and say, well, we, we authorize, but no, here's what Congress wants. Congress wants to be able to have the moral authority that when the war is going well, they can say, well, we funded it. And when the war is going poorly, it's like, well, that's the president's war. Yeah, time to put your big boy and big girl pants on and actually exercise this authority granted exclusively to Congress, not the president, not the judiciary. So sick and tired of that. I'm I don't I don't get fired up at all over that point. Anyway, 
<laughs> to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money uh, to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. Again, this has to do with uh, part of our budgeting. By process. the way, this is why the Air Force is unconstitutional. It totally, it be the Army Air Corps. Yeah, because I it, agree. The Constitution says, you know, the next one is to provide and maintain a navy. Notice how they didn't mention an Air Force. Now, there's an obvious yeah. reason why, <laughs> but um, yeah, just just pointing out that the Constitution yeah. only says no space force armies and, and navies. So, so uh, here's the here's my proposal: the Navy gets the space force and the army gets the air force um or maybe the navy can also get the coast guard too, hey look right? we already had the air force it's called the army air corps all right to provide and maintain a navy to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the union suppress insurrections and repel invasions to provide for ongoing uh, organizing arming and disciplining the militia da, 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 to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the district not exceeding the 10 miles square as made by uh, dc and stuff mm -hmm. and then to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution for the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this constitution, the government of the United States or in any department uh, or office thereof. Now, here's what I want to ask you. That right there, that right there is the authority that Congress has to operate on. Most of it, most of it has to do with defense. Don't you love the necessary and proper clause though there? That's the loophole, Nick. There we go. For the, the people who don't read the full sentence it the, is. Yeah. So the people say, well, the necessary and proper clause, as long as the federal, as long as Congress is determined that whatever they're doing is in the general welfare, well then of course, under the necessary and proper clause, they can establish whatever they need in order to actually carry that out. And they have the spending clause. They can lay and collect taxes, duties, and imposts. So of course, the federal might. Ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question. If all that was required for the federal government to do whatever it wanted was to say, well, we, we have a general welfare clause and, and Congress has decided that something's in the general welfare. And, and, and so obviously we can set up whatever we need to do what's in the general welfare because we have the necessary and proper, uh, proper clause. Oh, and by the way, the Constitution is, is supreme. So do you think any state would have ratified the constitution? Do you think any state would have ratified the constitution if they honestly believed that it, that in a, a faithful interpretation of the general welfare and the necessary and proper clause was as long as Congress decides it's in the general welfare, they can do whatever the hell they want. That's what I said earlier that I don't think a single state would have. There was actually a comment from Tracy Martin probably about 15 or 20 minutes ago. I've been copying some comments. Yeah, please. Let's, them do somewhere. Some, let's do some comments. Tracy Martin said, 15 years ago, I tried to read the Federalist Papers. I only made it through the first 10. I was so angry at everything the Federalist Papers said would not happen with the federal government is now coming true. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of those things where the anti-federal, if you read the anti-Federalist Papers, um, you're gonna figure out they got a lot. They got a lot right. I'm not saying they got it all right, but they got a lot right. Oh, I, I've I've got one that is maybe somewhat related to what we're talking about here with like the powers of Congress and where that authority derives and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from. <laughs> This is a hilarious name for an account. I run hose for money in wow. parentheses equipment operator. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's a. Uh, that guy's yeah. He says. <laughs> We're just going to call him equipment operator around here. He says, question, why do most politicians say we're a democracy when in reality we're a constitutional republic? So I, I would I would argue 
so you're right. We are a constitutional republic. You could add to that that we're a constitutional republic that operates off of certain democratic principles. In fact, we did a whole episode called Is, De- is Democracy the Solution or the Problem? I'd encourage you to watch that episode because we kind of do a deep dive into this this question and the differences between democracy and, and a republic. Um, I, I think during the progressive era, so like the the progressive era of the early 20th century, you see a, a lot more use of the term democracy. You see this with Woodrow Wilson saying, you know, making the world safe for democracy. And, and it's not totally inaccurate in the sense that we do have democratic processes, right? We do. And, and that's, that's a positive thing. The thing that I think is very problematic with, and the reason why I think a lot of modern politicians like to use it, is because democracy carries with it this, this um, insinuation nowadays that it, never, that it didn't before. And the insinuation nowadays is democracy is synonymous with freedom or justice. If something is democratically selected, therefore it is promoting freedom and it is just. That's not true. It is just simply not true. But you know who it gives a lot of power to? Elected representatives. If elected representatives can actually convince a population that whatever they decide through democratic processes is therefore freedom and justice, well, then what right do you have to oppose it? I mean, this is just the way that we solve things. This is the way that we adjudicate differences in a peaceful manner. Even if the way that we decided to adjudicate a particular difference is now going to authorize law enforcement personnel to confiscate your property or restrict your rights or restrict your options or restrict your freedom, not because you were doing anything inherently immoral, but because 50% plus one of the elected representatives decided that whatever you were doing was bad or wrong, or that they wanted to share, they wanted a cut of what it was you were earning. So that's the problem. The, the problem is not necessarily with, with um, democratic processes per se. I think democratic processes are, are an essential component of an, of an overall free society, but they're not a sufficient component. And unfortunately, nowadays, I think it's being treated like a sufficient component. As long as it's democratic, it, it's fine, and it's not. But I think the reason why it's become so prevalent is because if you believe that democratic processes are the primary way that we solve problems or address challenges, that gives a tremendous amount of power to politicians. See, I believe that the primary way that we address problems and challenges is not through democratic processes within a government system, but rather you exercising your freedoms, liberties, talents, etc. in order to choose to engage in voluntary cooperation with other people in order to address problems. Right? The, the government's not the reason why you have a job or a car or food on your table. That's most likely because you engaged in commerce with other people and you exchanged uh, goods and services in a way that benefited both of you together. Now, you could argue that the government might have had a role with respect to enforcing contract law or providing certain infrastructure or law enforcement in order to assist that. That's fine, but that's an assisting role, not the predominant role, right? So that, that's the important distinction. I think that's why politicians like to use it. Okay, the, the reason why I went through Article 1, Section 8 is because this lays out the specific powers and authorities of Congress, and what you see there is it's incredibly limited. So I want you to, I want you to imagine right now the 77,000 pages of federal regulations. And I want you to ask yourself, how many of those 77,000 pages of federal regulations do you think fall within these categories? And I'm going to argue it is a relatively very, very small amount. I feel like we're making the argument without intentionally doing so that for all of its beauty, I actually wrote, wrote this, um, in our, in our show notes and I'm, I'm just going to read it off. Um, I said that it's a beautifully written document, but clearly the Constitution is falling apart. Why should we care about it when the left clearly doesn't? 
so I, I think that's the better argument to make. I think that's something I know, we need to make I know, that's an argument that we should be making later we're gonna, on. We're going to do that I, at It's the just end. something that I, uh, we'll, uh, we'll we hold will, it. We, I promise we will duke this out. We'll, we'll hold yeah. it because the reason that I, I, I brought it up was not to derail us, but I just noticed, like, as we're going through this, that, like, we keep bringing up examples in the modern day yeah. of how, like, we got to the, the you know, value of the money. Well, they're doing a bang-up job with that. Well, we but, talked but about declaration of wars. But the larger, then we got question, into, larger question is, does it have to be this way? Right, because there there were certain there were certain things that happened, and here's the crazy part: not all of them were illegal, and that's that's the part that needs to be that's properly true. understood. That's Everybody true. has this idea that well, Congress has just decided screw the Constitution, do whatever they want. Actually, they didn't. If you look at the Progressive Era, they didn't say screw the Constitution, do whatever they want. They did on some things, but no, in many other cases, what they actually did was amend the Constitution in such ways that gave them legal authority to do things they should have never had the legal authority to do. And then they used other dangerous loopholes in, in waiting, yes. such as judicial review, yeah. using progressive courts in the 20th century to reinterpret the Constitution so many times that it basically created a new consensus, a new paradigm yeah. that is persisted all the way to the present day. The Supreme Court 200 plus years ago would have never, ever said something like Obamacare was constitutional. Oh no, no, it was absurd. Uh, Roe v. Wade was absurd. Regardless, now I'm very pro-life, but regardless how you feel on that, there, there are honest pro-choice people that said, yeah, Roe v. Wade was a, a ridiculously decided Ruth decision. Ruth Bader Ginsburg being one of them. Yeah, it was like, this was, this was a horribly decided decision. Because it, it also set this precedent where now the Supreme Court could just make stuff up out of yeah. out of out of thin so, air. So I don't mean to and, distract. And not, not to mention the fact that if if you're someone, the same people like we love democracy, well then you hated Roe v. Wade because that was not democratically that was not democratically decided by the what people. What we had before was democratic. Yeah, what we had before was democratic. States. But I I don't mean I know that we'll get to that yeah. later. Of of like, it, is any of this even still relevant? Because as we're going through these points that. I think we all know, because I keep seeing a lot of comments, too, from uh, the, the chat of people that are like, well, they're not following this and they're not following that. You know, they're just running roughshod over all of these things. And well, so let's just, let's let's get yeah. let's get through this. So drop down, uh, go back up and let's drop down to a section because we're never going to get through all of this if we don't speed this up a little bit. So let, let's go to uh, Article two. There you go. All right. So the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold uh, his office during the term of four years and together with a vice president chosen for the same term be elected as follows. Da, 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 da. Now, obviously, go ahead and scroll down here a little bit. It'll talk about the authorities of, of the presidency. Um, the president shall be commander in chief of the Army, Navy and the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into actual service of the United States. Th this is interesting because there's a lot of debate going on right now on whether or not the National Guard has been inappropriately called up and, and sent overseas um, without things like a declaration of war. And, and it, there's this gray area in there that's problematic. Um, he shall from time to time give to the Congress information uh, of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Um, the president, vice president, all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment or conviction of treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, the, okay, here we go. This part, section three is important. So we already say state of the union address, right? That's what the state of the union, um, he may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them. And in case of disagreement between them with respect to time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all officers of the United States. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed this nowhere in here. Does it say that the president is the, in, in the moral visionary of the country and the president, 
if you look at the actual authorities of the presidency of the United States, it is incredibly limited. And, and, it, and it really wasn't the first president to really go beyond a lot of these things and subvert power was, it, I mean, well, you could say Polk. Polk did a whole lot where he, he, was, he was pushing wars. Of like Lincoln. Lincoln was another one. You, you can love the Emancipation Proclamation. You can love that, um, you know, a lot of things that Lincoln did, but there's no question that Lincoln subverted constitutional There authority. was a question in the chat from Scott the Kelt who said, related to exactly what you just said there. Question, Nick, what is your opinion on Abraham Lincoln? Do you think he was a good president or was he an American tyrant like some people believe? Some I, libertarians will straight oh up be yeah. like, Lincoln was absolutely a tyrant. If you look at certain things that Lincoln did with respect to um, levying taxes, with respect to suspending of habeas corpus, he did a lot of things that if a president were to do it today, we would look at that and be like, what are you doing? Like a tyrannical, you would. You, you don't get to lock people. Woodrow Wilson did this too. You don't get to lock people up in time of war because you don't like what they're saying in the papers. Lincoln did that. Um, there, there's other things that Lincoln did that Wilson were, did it as well, like you pointed out. Yeah, there's other things that Lincoln did that were, were totally beyond the, the, the powers within the Constitution. Now, I, I'm someone that believes that history is a little bit more complex <laughs> than, than the, the version of it we're, we're often given. Um, and, and I don't just mean that in, in the negative. I mean that in the positive as well. A lot of times we, we treat certain historical figures as if they were deities instead of men and women. And so I, I think there's a lot of things that Lincoln did that I... I I think were very, very bad from a constitutional perspective. However, am I grateful for the Emancipation Proclamation? Yes. Am, am I grateful for the work that he did that that eventually you know turned into the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendments? Yes. I, I I think we can. I think we should look at things through the lens of what was going on at the time and try to come to an accurate conclusion about what were they doing with the information that they had. Right. Nothing is easier than looking back on history and saying, "Oh, that, I can't believe they did this or that." Now, some things are obvious. Right, some things are just obviously horrible and evil and heinous. Other things, there's a little bit more of a gray area. I think there were certain things that Lincoln did that were absolutely wrong. I think there were other things that he did that I might not have agreed with, but I, I can understand given the context why he might have chosen to do certain things. Um, again, doesn't mean I agree with them, but that's the part where I think we we have to distinguish between treating people, treating individuals as if they're demons or, or deities. And, and recognize what they were trying to go through and the decisions they were trying to make at the time. And then we need to have an honest discussion. We, we shouldn't just deify them later and say, oh, all we need to know about Lincoln is the Emancipation Proclamation. If that's all you know about Lincoln, then you also have an incomplete picture. If all you know about Lincoln is that he subverted the Constitution with respect to the suspension of habeas corpus, you also have an incomplete picture of Lincoln. So I, I think that's important. But I do think there's been some very important work done to, to basically talk about some of the things that Lincoln put into place and, and kind of broke certain precedents with respect to federal power that ha have plagued us to this day. Can I also And you could argue at the time, well, was, was it necessary to preserve the union? Okay, maybe. But if those also sowed the seeds for the eventual destruction of the union, is that is that not a conversation that we should have? To that point, Nick, this is something that I've I've long believed, and I don't I've never seen anybody else articulate this. To be honest, that what, going back to Federalist Fifty One, Madison's explaining, you know, the, the the things that can be used to preserve liberty, and he mentions the division between state and federal powers being one of those things. Well, yeah. I also said, well, that kind of went by the wayside in 1865. Yeah. Well, likewise, you can also argue that some of those powerful tools that states had at their disposal to rein in the power of the federal government, things like nullification yeah. and including secession. Those things were perverted and destroyed by the fire eaters themselves. Yeah. 
they they, they, they took the most powerful constitutional arsenals at, at the disposal of states to reign in the federal government, and they chose to deploy those tools in the sake of preserving slavery. Yeah. And I I, I want to write a book one day about how Southern fire eaters and, and like pro-slavery advocates in the South in the 1850s and 60s in some ways are the reason that we now have to deal with some of the nonsense that we have to deal with today because they took the most powerful tools that we had to preserve individual liberty and the balance of power between state and federal governments, and they threw them all at preserving slavery. And in doing so, not only did they lose the war— and thus completely ruined the possibility of ever using states' rights or nullification or secession ever again, at least in the modern era. But they also tainted those arguments with the evils of slavery. And so now if you come out and you say, well, I support states' rights, the left will say, oh, so you support, you're a segregationist, you're, you're pro-slavery, you're pro-Confederate. Yeah, because they were, they were utilized again during the civil rights movement. In, in ways that were whole, wholly un, inappropriate. And and what's interesting, Tom Woods actually uh, talks about this in a way I think is very effective in his book, Nullification. So so just so everyone understands, what, what we're talking about right now is we're talking about the power of the presidency and we're talking about an, an example of the president exceeding his authority and, and a state reaction to that. There, there's kind of three mechanisms that, that states have utilized in order to push back against the federal government when they believe they've they performed in an unconstitutional manner. One is nullification. Nullification is essentially when a state says, we don't recognize that federal law and we're not going to assist with the enforcement of it. So soft nullification is this idea that the law is, the law is there, but it's not our job to enforce it because we don't agree with it. Um, then you have interposition. So you have nullification, interposition. Interposition is when a state essentially says, we are nullifying that law. We do not believe it's constitutional. Not only are we not going to allow, not only are we not going to enforce it, we're not going to prevent federal authorities from enforcing it. One of the first cases, uh, one, an early documented case of interposition was actually when Wisconsin refused to allow U.S. Marshals to enforce the Runaway Slave Act. So basically, slaves had escaped the South, gotten into Wisconsin, the Runaway Slave Act said that they had to be returned to captivity, and Wisconsin law enforcement actually interceded, arrested a U.S. federal marshal, and said, we will not allow you to enforce this law. Now, I think most people would look at that and say, go Wisconsin. Well, that was a case of nullification and interposition. All right, the, the third remedy, or the third you know, thing for the states was secession. Now, this is an important question to ask because people look at it now where it's like, well, oh, secession was, was horrible. Okay, I, again, one can look at the concept of, it's important to look at the concept of secession and separate it from the concept of slavery, right? If you are seceding because you want to maintain the institution of slavery, I would argue that's highly problematic, right? I would argue that's evil, right? However, if you're wanting to secede because you believe you've reached a point where participation within the union is no longer advantageous to the citizens of your state, you could theoretically come up with perfectly morally justifiable reasons to want secession. Now, I don't want any state to secede. I don't want that. But it is important to understand why those mechanisms exist. And part of it was understanding the proper balance between the role of the federal government and the role of the states. And as Christian pointed out, that's largely been wiped off the, the face of, of the planet now. It's just what the federal government says goes and the states are just supposed to get in line. It's worth pointing out that we seceded. Yeah, we from the, United from the United Kingdom. 
All right, so let's go. Um, Actually, from Great Britain. I don't think it was the United Kingdom yet yeah, at yeah. that point. But right. So our Article 3 goes with uh, establishing the judiciary, and, and obviously this is establishment not only the Supreme Court, but other federal courts. And the purpose of that was to enforce federal law. So federal law, federal uh, regulations, and this is important. It wasn't anything Congress came up with. It was those federal laws and regulations which were afforded to it by the Constitution, by those enumerated powers. You will notice that the president has not is not given powers to make laws or regulations. They're, they're purely there to uh, faithfully execute the laws of the United States. Congress, under Article 1, Section 8, is only supposed to make laws and regulations governing the things which follow within their enumerated powers. All right? And then the judiciary is there, to, supposedly, to effectively interpret you know, the, the constitutional limitations. So it, it's, it's there to do essentially two things. It's there to um, uh, in, intervene when there has been a violation of legitimate federal law, and it is also there to intervene when the federal government has exceeded its own authority. Right now, here's the obvious problem with this, and this was something that came up within Madison versus Marbury, uh, Maryland versus McCullough. Does the Supreme Court have uh, like final say on that which is constitutional? Generally speaking today, that is how we operate. That is not actually enumerated in the Constitution. And the reason for that is because if the federal government, if an entity of the federal government has the final say on what federal authority is, well, then theoretically you've given one side of the, of the, the contract. Remember, this was a contract between the federal government and the states. You've now given final authority to one entity within the contract to decide what the, the actual legitimate and legal authority is. And that was very problematic. And, and one of the ways that people like Jefferson and Madison, Madison kind of flip-flopped on this, but Jefferson and Madison said that, well, no, states have, through nullification and through interposition, the ability to essentially say, we don't agree with that. We think it, we think it supersedes federal authority, and so we're not, going to, we're not going to recognize it. Now, that didn't give that state the ability to impose that interpretation on other states but it could essentially not participate in that aspect of it. And if it got so bad, it had the legal right to secede, to leave the union, right? But now, you know, again, because of the concept of judicial review and because of the Civil War and, and because of a, a number of other things, that's not how it's seen anymore. But what, what needs to be understood is that that does create a problem because now you're giving the federal government the sole authority to determine the authority of the federal government. Again, I'll go, I'll go back to if you had a legal document, if you had a contract with somebody and written into that contract was to say that if you and I have a disagreement, I get to decide what the, what the contract means. You wouldn't sign that, okay? And, and so it's important to understand, you understand that, the states understood that, and that's why it's not in the Constitution. That gets into, I, I think, one of the... The, the, the biggest flaws with the system, I said earlier, in my opinion, the biggest flaw with the founders when they crafted the Constitution was is that they did not stipulate how disagreements over interpreting the document itself would be adjudicated. Yeah. They, they, they put no mechanism in here for for any anybody to determine who has final say over what the wording means. Well, 
and and eventually the Supreme Court just gave itself that power. Well, and and uh, so Snake asks a good question. He goes, "How does the Constitution still work when you have states trying to override it but still remain within the union?" That's an excellent question, because in in most cases, if you and I signed a contract and we determined that there would be an adjudicating body, if you and I had a disagreement about the contract, we could go somewhere else to get that adjudicating body. It would be a court system, right? Or or it might be uh, uh some uh, what's the um, I'm trying to think of what the arbitration. Um, an arbitrator, someone that would come in as a, as a trusted third party in order to adjudicate the difference, right? So what happens when you have this agreement between the states and the federal government, and now the federal government is exercising its proper authority and the state isn't you know, participating? What's interesting there is that you've got a couple mechanisms for this. Um, now, one is, is that the, the federal government can essentially withhold um, support for whatever it is that's going on. So for instance, if the federal government has monies to distribute based off of a particular thing and that state says, we don't want to participate, the federal government come in and say, okay, fine, if you don't want to participate, you're not going to get the corresponding funding for it. Um, the other thing that they could argue is that if there's a clear violation of what, what, is, what is obviously a federal power. Now, here's what I'll tell you. I don't see too many situations. I don't see too many situations where a state has said, I want to remain in the union but I don't want to accept that the federal government has authority or power over this particular thing. That generally doesn't happen. Usually it happens when there is basically an, an egregious overreach or there's very, very unclear interpretation. And a lot of the interpretation within the necessary and proper clause and especially the general welfare and the interstate commerce clause has led to some significant problems where I think states have a very good argument to make. Now, again, we've had various Supreme Courts. Some of them, been, I, I think, faithful, you know, uh, capable of faithfully interpreting the constitution. Others within this like living constitution doctrine go completely out the window. And we'll, we'll discuss one of those specifically with the interstate commerce clause in a decision called Filburn. So I, I think the, the, the federal government's uh, pressure that it can apply to the state has to do with the power of the purse, like appropriately applied. Um, and also the overall benefits that the federal government is supposed to convey a, as part of the union. And if a state says, I don't want to participate with that, well, then they're going to have to ask a question at one point where it's like, well, if you want to remain and the federal government is actually executing something that's clear, clearly federal authority, you're either going to have to submit to the decision, right, of either the Supreme Court or maybe your own populace, right? If the population within your state doesn't agree with the, the governor or the state legislature is doing with respect to the federal government, well, then they can elect a new one. And now all of a sudden the problem has been adjudicated well, while still keeping the respect for the proper roles in place. The other option is a state could say, you know what, we just don't agree with this anymore and therefore we're going to secede. So the federal government's real power should become in withholding the things that are associated with its legal authority, not made up authority, but legal authority, and say, fine, you don't get the benefit if you don't want to actually participate. That's fair. By the same token, if a state says, okay, fine, I don't want to participate and now I'm removing myself from the union, you, you would have to come to some conclusion that that is also fair. Um, but I, I would say that in the vast majority of cases, what we see is that when the federal government is, is faithfully executing its authority, you don't see a lot of pushback from the states, at least not for a long time. You don't see a great deal of pushback from the states. Uh, it's usually when there's a, a real question of whether or not the federal government is, is overstepping its boundaries and what, what is the appropriate application of the law. Nick, do you want to go through what are the four um, most yeah, we, misinterpreted we gotta, clauses of the Constitution. So, so let, let's we jump to that. some of them. Let's jump to that. So we've already talked about why we have a Constitution, the debates over the Constitution, what the Constitution actually does. We're not talking about the Bill of Rights. We're not just the Constitution itself. It establishes the federal government 
and it establishes the mechanisms for how people will be elected, how they will serve, and what their authorities and responsibilities will be with the intention that it was very, very limited and enumerated. Limited and enumerated. And it's important to understand this didn't mean that the federal government didn't think that there were other responsibilities that the, the government might be responsible for, but they did not think it was the responsibility of the federal government, and they were very intentional about that. So what are the four most deliberately misrepresented clauses of the Constitution? Number one, the general welfare clause. Yeah, that means that we get to set up a large you know, Nordic-style welfare state, Nick. This is so, <laughs> so stupid. This is why the government should take over control of health care. It's in the Constitution. This is, this is so dumb. If you honestly believe, and this got this, and just so you know that we're, this is not a new debate, the anti-federalists were saying this general welfare clause gives the federal government way too much authority and, and, and power. And the anti-federalists, or excuse me, the federalists came back and said, that's nonsense. The responsibilities of the the reason why we have a written constitution is because the responsibilities and powers of the federal government are limited and enumerated. Of course, the general welfare clause doesn't mean that Congress or the feds can do whatever they want as long as they've determined it's, quote, in the general welfare. No, what general welfare is meant to, the connotation there is supposed to be that the federal government is not supposed to exercise its authorities, its enumerated powers in such a way as to to give benefit to a locality or or a, an individual entity, it is supposed to be thinking with the general welfare of everybody involved, right? That is a very different interpretation than feds can do what they want as long as they've decided. So, well, gosh, you know what? Um, TVs, everybody having access, everybody having a smartphone. We, we decided that that's a good thing. And so now the federal government can allocate funds in order to make sure that every American has a smartphone. Because, you know, general welfare... That's absurd. Here's what Madison says, literally writes in Federalist number 40. He says, some who have not denied the necessity of the power of taxation have grounded a very fierce attack against the Constitution on the language in which it is defined. It has been argued and echoed that the power to, quote, to lay the um, to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts and excises to pay the debts and to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, end quote, amounts to an unlimited commission to exercise every power and which may be alleged to be necessary for the common defense or general welfare. And then he says, no stronger proof could be given of the distress under which these writers labor for objections than their stooping to such a misconstrued, um, uh, 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 mis, I'm going to sound like an idiot here. <laughs> yeah, <go on. laughs> Misconstruction. Oh my gosh, for a second, my mind was blinking there. I was reading it in my head, but couldn't say it out loud. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm going to read that last sentence because he's dismissing people who are saying, oh, the general welfare of the United States, that line leads to a, quote, unlimited commission to exercise every power. And then he concludes, no stronger proof could be given to the distress under which these writers, he's referring to the anti-federalists, labor for their objections. And then they're stooping to, su um, to such a misconstruction. So he's basically saying these people are dead wrong. And yeah. they're having to like pull an argument out of thin air in order to say that this is going to lead to unlimited power. Madison is literally saying in Federalist number 40, that will never happen. Yeah. I well, mean, I, I think history has completely proven him wrong and the anti-federalists correct. No, I, I, I think that's true. So the, the whole that's idea- the first of the four terrible clauses. Yeah. Right the, the, so the important thing to understand about the general welfare clause is it cannot possibly mean what- the, the the liberal interpretation of, of of that 
clause uh, or, or what the liberal interpretation suggests, which is to say that provided that Congress believes it's in the general welfare, they have the authority to create rules, restrictions, or allocate funding as such. The general welfare clause has to be recognized in accordance with Article 1, Section 8, and it has to be recognized in accordance with the very specific and limited powers of Congress, right? To, to just, again, I'll, I'll ask the question again. If the general welfare clause actually conveyed the sort of wide-sweeping authority that many people believe it does, why would you need anything else within the Constitution? Why would you need enumerated powers? Why would you need to lose some, Why would you need to list out anything? You would just say Congress has the authority to do whatever it wants provided they decide it's within the general welfare. Done. I mean, it would have saved a lot of ink, right? The reason why that's not the case is because it wasn't the case. And so it, it has only been later. And, and, and again, I, I will admit you had people like Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, that was trying at the very early stages. But that's because Alexander Hamilton wanted a more centralized authority. He wanted a more domineering federal government, which was the very thing that most people did not want in the United States. And the very thing that Alexander Hamilton himself argued against when he was trying to get ratification of the Constitution. So it's important to understand that the General Welfare Clause cannot possibly convey the meaning that is sometimes attributed to it, it the, the more accurate interpretation of the general uh, welfare clause is that when Congress is acting to allocate funds, it should not be allocating funds or making rules um, within its authority in, in order to benefit like a, a small population. It, it shouldn't be using the general funds in order to advantage one particular group over another particular group. It should be thinking with the general welfare of the entire population of the entire country. That's how it should be thinking. That's clearly not how it's being interpreted today. So what's the second one? Second one. Oh, my gosh. So I got to tell a story. I'll, tell the, I'll say this. The Supreme Court loves this second one. Oh, yeah. The Interstate Commerce Clause. So I think, I think this what's was the, the question. I, I think it was. So the first time I met Senator Mike Lee, okay. I was sitting in his office, and I can't remember. Um, I think it was. Yeah, it was this one. So I sit down with Senator Mike Lee. He's, he's sitting there. Super nice guy, right? And he's like, well, you know, Nick, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I said, well, you know, uh, this is my background. I served in the military. I currently serve in the Virginia House of Delegates. I'm married to my wife, Tina. I have three kids, you know. He's like, oh, that's great. You know, hey, thank you for your service. Thank you. That's, that's one. What do you think of the Interstate Commerce Clause? <laughs> that was the first question he asked. Oh, it was like abrupt. It was abrupt. And I looked at him. I said, oh, my gosh, it's been horribly misinterpreted. In fact, you really want to get to some other. Let's also talk about the general welfare clause and necessary and proper. You want to talk about supremacy clause? I'd love to talk about how that's messed up. And then he's like, I like this guy. <laughs> and so and, and I proceeded to go into like the, the Filburn decision. So what is the purpose of the interstate commerce clause? Well, the, the purpose of the interstate commerce clause. I'm going to ask you to define the Filburn decision in a minute. I, I will. I will. We're going to okay. we're going to go through. In fact, let me let me just bring it up so I can. Um, Kind of read this off. Uh, I'm just going to, yeah, here we go. Interstate. All right. Oh, no, that's the Interstate Commerce Act. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, overview of Commerce Clause. All right. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And, and this is what this constitution.congress.gov says the commerce clause gives Congress broad power. No, it does not to regulate interstate commerce and restrict states from impairing interstate commerce. Early Supreme court cases primarily viewed the commerce clause as limiting state power rather than as a source of federal power. Mm -hmm. and, and this is accurate. This is an accurate interpretation of it. So what the, what the commerce clause was meant to do was to establish that 
the, the federal government really didn't have a role in intrastate commerce, which is to say that if you're buying a product, producing a product, selling a product, whatever it is within your respective state, the federal government really doesn't have much say over that. What they were trying to do is prevent states from essentially engaging in trade wars within the United States. So they didn't want Virginia setting up tariffs for Kentucky. Right? It, it was this idea that the United States was going to be a free trade zone. And then when it came to negotiating uh, trade with foreign entities, and, and keep in mind, when this was all written, the primary source of revenue for the federal government was not domestic taxation. It was duties and imposts. It was, it was, it was tariffs, essentially. That was one of the primary mechanisms that the federal government raised money. And so... The argument was, and you could debate this, but the argument was the federal government has to operate uh, collectively when it comes to determining what trade policy is because it's one of the primary sources of its revenue in order to raise armies and everything else. Uh, and then, of course, with the Indian tribes as well, because the Indian tribes, even, even though there was problems, they were still seen as you know sovereign entities within the United States. And so, again, part of the reason why they were moving from the Articles of Confederation to the idea of the, the federal government was the federal government was going to take on the role of negotiating on behalf of all of the states with foreign entities or with Indian tribes. And then a part of that was also to make sure that within trade, within the United States, there would essentially be a free trade zone. Okay? Now... If you if you understand that, and, and again, this is even admitted that this was kind of like the early interpretation. He goes, of the approximately 1,400 commerce clauses the Supreme Court has heard before 1,900 most stemmed from state legislation. As a consequence, the Supreme Court's early interpretations of the commerce clause focused on the meaning of commerce while paying less attention to the meaning of regulate. During the 1930s, however, the Supreme Court increasingly heard cases on Congress's power to regulate commerce with the result that its interstate commerce clause jurisprudence evolved markedly during the 20th century. 1942, the Filburn decision was essentially just blew the lid off of any sort of, it, it used to be that, that the commerce had to do with essentially like trade. And then all of a sudden commerce became like any sort of productive activity whatsoever. Right. So you, you have a massive, you have a massive difference with respect to what commerce actually includes from the early interpretation to the modern interpretation. And then you also have a massive difference with respect to what federal authority is. So in 1942, what the Supreme Court, and keep in mind, the, the FDR, the first case of a real threat of court packing was FDR because FDR kept passing legislation with the National Recovery Administration, with the New Deal, with all these other programs, which were, by the way, heavily influenced by Italian fascism. Don't take my word for it. Go look at Hugh Johnson, who, who ran the National Recovery Administration and used to pass out fascist, fascist tracts to include the corporatist state, right? This is FDR. He passed all the stuff which were clear violations of the Constitution, clear violations of federal authority. And there was called there was four members of the Supreme Court called the Four Horsemen that constantly were striking these down. And then FDR threatened to pack the court. Well, what ended up happening is some of those justices retired. He replaced them with these living Constitution justices. And in 1942, you had the manifestation of one of the most absurd Supreme Court decisions, I would argue, in history. Probably not the most immoral, but one of the most absurd. In 1942, they ruled against a farmer. And here's what the farmer was doing. The farmer was growing, I think it was wheat. I think he was growing wheat. And they found out that this was in violation of different federal laws that had passed under the New Deal. 
And the argument from the farmer was, I was growing wheat for my own consumption. The federal government has no authority to tell me what sort of wheat, what, what I can grow for my own consumption. And the Supreme Court ruled under Filburn that if that farmer had not grown the, the wheat, the farmer might have gone to the grocery store in order to buy a corresponding product. And when they went to the grocery store, the wheat that he bought or the corresponding product that he bought might have come from a different state. And so therefore, under the Interstate Commerce Clause, the federal government has the ability to regulate not just commerce in the original sense of like trade, but productive activity because it could affect interstate commerce. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a bottomless interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause. What you've essentially done, if you're really going to interpret it that broadly, if you're really going to go so far as to say that if something affects interstate commerce clause, therefore the federal, or some, excuse me, if something affects interstate commerce, therefore the federal government has the authority to regulate it, the government can regulate literally everything, literally everything, right? You, you own a, you own a dog. Well, did, did you buy that dog in your state? Yeah. Well, if you hadn't bought that dog in your state, you could have bought it from another state and that would have affected interstate commerce. So we can regulate your dog. Where'd you get those SpaghettiOs? Like, like, like this is in, you can come up with a never ending loop of absurd you know, manifestations of this, of this reasoning. That was a unanimous decision too. That's how stupid it was. But this was also because the court had been scared to death off of FDR's uh, court packing scheme. So just, just understand the original intention of the, the commerce clause was very, very specific to a, a particular definition of commerce, generally dealing with trade, not all productive activity. And it had to do with trade crossing state boundaries or international boundaries. And, and, and it was not there to give the federal government infinite control over regulating the economy, but that loose interpretation in Filburn, and thank God we had, we had, we, we've had Supreme Court decisions, decisions post-Filburn, which have essentially reined it back in thanks to people like Scalia. But they're still, but it's still somewhat really limited, though. I it's mean, still really bad. Because the Obamacare decision in 2012 in many ways reinforced yes. Filburn yeah. rather than thank you, it back. Thank you, Justice Roberts. That was so dumb. So ridiculous, or no? He he did it was under, Roberts. He did it under his interstate commerce clause. No, no, no. He did under taxing he did it under authority. taxing authority. He did it under taxing, not interstate commerce. The, but but the thing was is that people were using the interstate yeah. commerce. Both sides actually were using that argument. <coughs> so that's the second one. Yeah. Um, These next two I'm going to do in tandem, right? The supremacy clause and necessary and proper. Do we had a question? Real quick before we move forward, uh, just a note for everyone. I am taking notes on questions from the MTA channel and Rumble. Uh, we're going to get to those after we get through these next two. So if you have a question and we haven't gotten to it, stick around. Yeah, I, po I apologize. We're like on a roll right now, so I'm not reading the screen as, as well as I, I try to. Supremacy clause and necessary and proper clause. The reason why we're going to take these two together is because I think they've been misinterpreted kind of a, along the same lines of reasoning. The supremacy clause doesn't mean that whatever the federal government does, they have supremacy. The supremacy clause doesn't mean any federal interpretation of supreme uh, of the Constitution automatically wins out because they're the federal government. The supremacy clause only means that insofar as a state law violates jurisdictions that have not been given to it by the, con or excuse me, uh, insofar as state law interferes in those jurisdictions or authorities that have been granted to the federal government by the Constitution, the Constitution is supreme, right? So the only way the supremacy clause works is if 
what whatever's being decided actually falls within the proper jurisdiction boundaries and authorities granted in the constitution. It, it is not a free for all that whatever the federal government decides to do that, that wins out. That's, that's not what it is. Necessary and proper clause is pretty similar. Um, necessary and proper clause essentially says that again, Congress and the federal government is allowed to do those things or to establish certain entities in, in order to, um, in order to carry out its enumerated powers. So for instance, if the, if the United States government, if the federal government is responsible for maintaining a Navy and a, um, and an air force, or excuse me, Navy and an army. All right. Well then it stands to reason they're going to need army bases. It stands to reason they're going to need naval bases. It stands to reason that they're going to have to allocate funds in order to build ships or actually sign contracts in order to buy weapons. Now it doesn't say within the constitution, you're authorized to buy weapons for the army. It says, no, you maintain an army. It's obvious that part of maintaining an army requires training. It requires uniforms. It requires provisions. It requires ammunition. It requires equipment. And then obviously you can do the things that are necessary and proper in order to do those things. Now, if the government came in and said, well, you know, we, we have to maintain an army. And so, uh, therefore we're going to like round you all up and throw you in the army whenever we feel like it. Right. Okay. That would be a little bit more problematic. Now we do have a draft. We have a, do have a draft system. Right. But, but the point is, is just because something is, um, just because the federal government has an authority doesn't mean that anything that they could, you know, kind of tangentially associate with that, Autom automatically becomes necessary and proper. The Constitution says that we need to maintain an army, so therefore we're going to use taxpayer fund uh, funds in order to subsidize service members getting abortions. Yeah. yeah. That, that is something the Pentagon is currently... This came out just a few days ago where the Pentagon was like, yeah, we're going to... You know, that, we're, that is, that we're going to no, pay for these. Yeah, no, nowhere does that fall within necessary and proper. Nowhere. It, it, just, it just doesn't. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the issue. Necessary and proper has to be understood that we're talking about necessary and proper with respect to the carrying out of those specific enumerated powers. You start to go beyond that, and that becomes highly problematic. All right, last thing that we'll get to here. Oh, and then the, la the last thing is yeah. it's worth mentioning the necessary and proper clause says gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Yeah. Not whatever powers you Everybody feel like. Everybody forgets that last line, the foregoing powers. It doesn't say any power. It doesn't say all powers. It says the ones that have been listed in this document up above. Yeah, yeah. I, I, everybody in D.C. seems to just it, completely ignore the second part of that sentence right there. That stipulates what things are supposed to be necessary and proper for. Yeah. It's supposed to be an execution of the other stuff up above. Yeah, not whatever the federal government. So the decides. supremacy clause. There was actually a. Um, yeah, there was a comment by um, John here. He goes, yes, "The supremacy clause means one. the Constitution is supreme, not the federal government." Absolutely correct. Within the bounds the Constitution places on the federal government, the federal government is supreme. That is true. That is that is a you know good interpretation and of the, the problem clause. that we've had for decades now is that dc has been interpreting it as the supremacy clause means the federal government is supreme yeah and that anything the federal government says yeah. states and individuals just have to bow down and take it yeah no, like, absolutely absurd and and it, it kind of gets into a miss as you said you wanted to take them both in in one take right the supremacy clause and the necessary and proper clause it's a similar misinterpretation it's not even a misinterpretation i feel like that, that some of this is deliberate to be completely honest i don't think that it's just people are are you know incapable of reading it properly i think that it's people who have an agenda to push are going to push for that agenda 
And come hell or high water, it doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what the Constitution says. We're going to reinterpret the Constitution or just ignore it flat out yeah. insofar as we need to do so in order to achieve our desired end state. Yeah. This is why, like, ultimately, constitutions... I, I sent a message um, when, when Nick sent around the show notes when he was planning out this episode. And the message that I sent was, you know, I, I feel like that... The, one of the big objections is going to be the left saying the the constitution's just a piece of paper <laughs> and the right's going to be like the constitution is just a piece of paper well and <laughs> I, I, like I think the different I think, tone there i, I, well, think. I think what like john adams kind of hit on this where he said our constitution was written for a moral and religious people and is totally unsuited to any other the idea that a, a constitutions have authority not simply because the ideas are good not simply because they're written down constitutions have authority because people believe that the statements of principles and the limitations that are placed within them um, are are true and good and just. And the moment the vast majority of people don't agree that anymore, your your paper, your parchment is not gonna is not gonna hold up. I got a couple things here I want to do. Um, one is a walking contradiction said, Mister Hines, you need to grow your beard out and braid it, then strap a battle axe to your back. You can pull off the Viking look. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with this. All right, Daniel Clark, question. Is the Electoral College constitutional? If it is, doesn't that go against our freedom if only the government or people chosen by the government can choose the president? Daniel Clark, good question. Is it constitutional? Absolutely. Because it actually lays out as, as the process for selecting the president. Now, there's a couple things to ask yourself on why do we have electors? Well, again, the, the reason for this was because the office of the presidency was essentially to just carry out the, the laws of the land properly put into place by the federal government and within the boundaries of the Constitution. Um, part of the reason why they had the Electoral College was because they also wanted, they wanted to be uh, like a... Um, uh, a popular component to it that has to do with the number of electors by state, but then they also wanted there to be a state component, right? There was, it, it's important to note that there's always been this balance between uh, popular representation and state representation. And that goes back to, we are a Republic of Republics. So I, I think it's important to understand when, when we view it through that lens, the electoral college makes a lot more sense. Now the electoral college itself has, has developed over time initially what it was is like each state was voting for who their electors were going to be because the electors were people that were essentially trusted people, right? So they were popularly elected, but then they would go and they would make a decision with respect to who their state wanted to be the president. And, and it provided this, this process, not only for election, but also for debate among the electors. Now, over time, we, we've adjusted that to where most state laws govern that whatever the popular vote is within the respective states, all of the electors are to go to whoever the popular vote states. There's exceptions to that. Nebraska being one, Maine being one. Are there any others? Um, Nebraska and Maine are currently the only ones, yeah. but historically there have been in the past other states. Michigan in the 1890s, I believe, so briefly they, did it. Yeah, so so sometimes they'll, they'll break it down um, in, in accordance with, I think it's congressional, congressional, districts. congressional districts, and they'll, they'll allocate the electors that way. So um, it, it, it is constitutional. There's a debate on whether or not it's, it's, an, it's still an appropriate system. I think it still maintains some vestige of ensuring uh, not only popular a choice of the president, but also state concerns as well. And, and I think that makes sense with our overall federalist system. So do you want to get to the honorable mention in terms of most misinterpreted clauses of the Constitution, the controversial three-fifths compromise? Oh, boy. This is, I just... Just have at it, Nick. Oh, go. my gosh. Like, 
it was either last, it was either this session or last session. I watched as a member of the Virginia House of Delegates got up and said the the Constitution, the three fifths compromise, said that black people were only three fifths of a person. And I'm looking, going, how how ignorant of the Constitution of this whole debate do you have to be to still believe that in the 21st century? And 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 then I realized, oh no, it's. It's the old Reagan adage. It's not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. The three-fifths compromise was not about the Constitution declaring that black people were three-fifths of the person. You want to know how I know? Because it didn't apply to free states. It applied to people in captivity. Why is that, you might ask? Well, I don't know. For all of you who thinks that the three-fifths compromise was this, this vestige of, of pro-slavery sentiment within the Constitution, if we had counted, if we had counted each person in captivity, each slave, as a person for population, you would have drastically increased the power of slave states. The three-fifths compromise was an attempt to curtail the authority of slave states with respect to representation. Because we all know the slaves weren't getting to elect who represented them, were they? So you can look back at the institution of slavery, and as I do, and think this was horrible. This is the great sin, right, at the American founding. You can also look at it within context and recognize that there was a lot of people there. George Mason, who was a Virginian, got up and railed against the institution of slavery at the Constitutional Convention. But they came to the conclusion that they weren't going to be able to unify if they tried to if they tried to address it right then. The three-fifths compromise hints at the fact that what it was is, is that anti-slavery advocates at the Constitutional Convention were opposed to slave states demanding that their slaves be counted as people yes. and to artificially inflate their representation of the House of Representatives. They wanted to... Uh, and Northern, you know, places like Massachusetts and stuff like that, Northern delegates were like, no, you you, you can't say on one hand they're property, not people, and then on another hand say, but we're going to count them as people in order to artificially inflate our political power. Yeah. And then the Southern slave states were like, take it or leave it. We, you know, we're going to walk, basically, yeah. unless you compromise with us. And so the three-fifths compromise wasn't attempt by anti-slavery advocates to get something yeah. because they had so little power at the time yeah. th to get something to curtail the power of slavery in the United States. Same thing with the, with the ban 20 years after the fact on the, on, on, um, the, uh, transcontinental slave trade, yeah. um, or, or sorry, um, you know, overseas slave trade. Yeah. And that was another thing that was written to the constitution. Unfortunately, they, the anti-slavery advocates couldn't get it enshrined in immediately. Yeah. And so they, they got the best deal that they could at the time, which was 20 years after ratification, it would give Congress the power to ban yeah. slavery. And in literally exactly 20 years after the constitution was ratified, that was the first thing Congress did was ban overseas yeah. slave trading because they were finally allowed to do so. So these were things that modern day, I cannot stand the 1619 people and, and leftists in general who just want to just just absolutely tear apart the founding of this country and make it sound like that the United States was founded on on just pure evil because they hate everything they hate everything about this country yeah. and they they lie through their teeth it's one thing for them to point to things that actually happen and say that's evil and this is the reason why I hate yeah. the United States it's another thing for them to lie through their teeth about something that's written in plain English that you can go and read Madison's notes you can go and read the constitution itself and you can see for yourself I'm not making this stuff up 
that the the three fifths compromise was an anti slavery measure in order to curtail the power of slave states, and they want to twist this around into making it sound like that people were saying black people were only three fifths of a person. Yeah. That wasn't the case for black people living in free states. It nope. was only the case for slaves in order to curtail the power of slave owners. Oh, here's the question I like to ask people: Always bring that. I'm like, oh, so you oppose the three fifths compromise? Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay, so you think slave states should have had more representation in Congress? Wait, what? Yeah, exactly. You don't know what you're talking about. You you can be mad that the three-fifths compromise was necessary, right? But don't don't misinterpret what it was actually about. <laughs> is this oh, wait, we just got somebody donated said, is this off-brand Nick Offerman being based? <laughs> I'm the Ron Swanson version, not the Nick Offerman version. All right. Reminder, Nick Freitas, you should mention state legislatures still have the final say over how the electors are chosen. If Virginia GA chooses so, it can select electors by drawing lots, et cetera. No, that's that's absolutely true. There, there's a great deal of authority provided to the states that, that was somewhat limited with the uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and whatnot. And, and again, because there was things like poll taxes, things like um, poll tests, which were Again, horrible attempts to try to disenfranchise people uh, in in violation of the Fourteenth Amendment. But um, that yeah. has been called into question by Moore versus Harper, that was decided um, just a, what a month ago. You're talking about the the, the Supreme Court federal... decision on the independent state legislature theory. The Supreme Court ruled against it six to three. Now, I don't believe that that explicitly mentioned the appointing electors, but it did say that that. Basically, the Supreme Court said that state legislatures do not have absolute, you know, full authority over all the the, the, the mechanisms through which elections are conducted in their states. So yeah, there's limitations on the mm -hmm. yeah, there's there's limitations on it. I, I mean, that, that's kind of obvious. Again, with the Voting Rights Act and things like that, that doesn't mean a, a state can't just do whatever the heck they want, but they still do have a lot of authority within what might be considered legitimate processes. Um, OK, what are we on now? You got some questions? Yeah, let's jump in here with right. some questions. Uh, we've got two from Intensive Care Bear on the MTA channel, <laughs> a very active member of our community chat. First one is, do you think there is a better governing document or a system than the Constitution? No. Oh, gosh, that's a... I, 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 don't, I don't think... Well... <laughs> you mean you don't think the Constitution of South Africa or oh Venezuela is a better document? Um <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think one of the brilliant things about the I believe the Constitution is twenty two pages with amendments. With amendments, and and if and if you look at um if you look at most constitutions like the Soviet Constitution, it's amazing. They always they always go into all these. One of the reasons why Ginsburg thought that the South African Constitution was better is because it guaranteed rights of housing and healthcare, and it, you can't. We we discussed this before. I'm going to say it very briefly right here. There's this thing called positive rights versus negative rights. Negative rights are basically prohibitions or restrictions on government or other people imposing their will on you. The, the, the powerful thing about negative rights is that it doesn't require anybody else to give you something in order for you to have that right. It prevents them from doing something to you. Positive rights are things like you have, you have a right to health care. You have a right to health. Healthcare, housing, all of these things don't exist except in the sense of goods and services and property. You can't have a right to somebody else's services. You can't have a right to somebody else's, not an inherent right. You can trade for it. You can exchange for it. You can pay them and then have a right based off of the payment that you give them for them to be able to provide that service. But you can't have an inherent right to the liberty or property of somebody else. And yet Democrats are constantly saying that you can. We fought a war over this. You can't. You don't have an inherent right to the property, labor, uh, labor or ideas of somebody else. You just don't. 
So whenever a constitution says you have a right to health care, what they're really saying is the government is now going to confiscate the property of other people in order to provide this good or service. Well, that just begs the question, what kind of health care? Whatever health care the government decides you have a right to. So this, this has always been very, very problematic. Now, in the U.S. Constitution, again, it puts all of its emphasis on what we would call natural, or what I would call God-given rights, which is to say that when you look at it, it's always prohibitions on the government doing something to you, right? That's what it is. Me exercising my freedom of religion doesn't require you to do anything. You know, me exercising my freedom of speech doesn't require you to do anything. Right. And so that that's the distinction. That that's the difference. And it's also one of the reasons why I think that I cannot think of another document. Um, well, I'll, I'll actually I'll take that back. There's one other system of government uh, that would be superior, in, in my opinion, that I can think of. And that is if if God were to come down and directly govern. <laughs> right. If, if an all knowing, all powerful, all perfect being decided that he was going to come down and be like this, this is it. Do this. And. Yes, you that heard would it be, here. Nick supports be, absolute theocracy, monarchy. Right? The, even worse, theocracy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'll say this: is it, even though it was unwritten and it eventually fell apart, the Roman political system worked very well for like almost five hundred years. We're not even two hundred fifty years in, and and I really feel like that our system is starting to fall apart at the seams here, yeah. and it's just being ignored flat I, out. I think, uh, and the uh, Roman system wasn't even written, and it was obeyed and successfully executed for almost five centuries. I, I think there's things. I think there's things that we could. In, in, I think there's things that we can improve on our constitution. I'll put it that way. But the like the founding document of the constitution, I think, is very very solid. Obviously, it's changed since then in ways that which I think were beneficial. I think the Thirteenth Amendment abolishing slavery was was absolutely necessary and very important. Um, and then I think the Bill of Rights was was an important component. And so let, let's kind of get into that um, if we can. Unless we got another question, like waiting. We got right a now. few more. All right, go ahead and ask them. All right, I'm going to move on to Adam's question. Uh, do you think it is possible that the USA is just too large to manage properly? Might it be beneficial if America split into two smaller countries? I don't think it's about two smaller countries. I, I think it's so. My personal opinion is that we've gotten to a point where we're just no longer observing federalism. Do you know what we're supposed to be? What's that? 50 smaller countries. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to be. That's what the states are supposed to be. If you look at what Madison was trying to achieve as he looked at like the Venetian Republic and as he looked at the various Republicans, uh, republics throughout Europe, he noticed that once it got big and once it expanded and that authority was centralized in a, in a, in a location that was far away, people lost faith in it. So the whole idea of federalism was the federal government's powers are, are limited. They're enumerated. They're just going to deal with these things. But most of the things that actually affect you on a day-to-day -day basis, that's going to be handled at the state or local level. And what that does is it allows you to be a part of a larger entity, the United States of America, while finding a place within the United States of America that caters more to your individual preferences, not just with respect to things like geography or economic opportunity, but also with respect to governance. And so if we could just get back to recognizing, like, let me, let me put it this way. I have no desire to impose. There are certain things I prefer that I have no desire to use the federal government to impose on you. My problem is, is that I can't find many people on the left that don't think if it's a good idea, well, then of course the federal government should be imposing it. Like I, I that's become the problem. It's a lack of respect for the fact that we are never going to agree on everything and peaceful coexistence is not found in, in one side or a 50% plus one imposing their will on everybody else, peaceful coexistence is generally found in leaving other people alone when you can't agree, except for when it is something that is so essential to existence that it requires some sort of regulation by law. 
All right, we have two questions, one from Roya and Tyler, both very similar, so I'm going to read both of them. With all the wrong things implemented, interpreted in the Constitution, is it possible to take advantage of some amendments or add clear language to the Constitution to correct those wrongs? And Tyler asks, what what would it take to remove an amendment? Can SCOTUS deem one as unconstitutional if it goes against the original document? No. Because if you're amending the Constitution, you're amending the original document. Yeah, it doesn't so, work like that. That's what yeah. the amendment process is for. Yeah, the, so we, for instance, we have changed the Constitution. We've changed the Constitution 27 times. You have the Bill of Rights, right, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Then you have, you know, 11 through 27. To These, be fair, those first 10 amendments were all ratified at once. Yeah, they were. It was <laughs> so a little was, bit different. It was only 17 times. Yeah, it, it was a little bit different. The other thing to keep in mind is that we've actually removed amendments from the Constitution. So, for instance, when the, thir- when the 13th Amendment came into play, the three-fifths compromise went away from the body of the Constitution because it was no longer necessary, right? When, um, uh, when Prohibition was passed, the 18th Amendment, um, and then it was repealed by the 20... 20- it was the... Um, I should know. It was this. the 21st Amendment. I think that, it was the 21st. Um, so, a- anyways, prohibition passed under the 18th Amendment, right? That that made. Um, yeah, it was the 21st Amendment. Certain kinds of like transactions with respect to alcohol and consumption were not illegal in the United States. And then we amended the Constitution shortly after to get rid of that amendment. So that's the process that it takes. Now, people will say that it's a it's a long, arduous process. Yes, it's supposed to be. One of the reasons why we have separation of powers and one of the reasons why we have an amendment process but it's not easy is because of something that George Will once said. George Will once said that American political gridlock is not a problem, it's an American achievement. And the reason why is because if you respect the fact that what government action essentially is is force, it's coercion, it's the threat of violence for noncompliance. And if you're going to impose that at the federal level, then now you're imposing on 330 million people. I got news for you. If 50% plus one of the population wants something, that still leaves over 160 million people who don't want it. You need to be really careful on what you're trying to impose on that sort of level. And so that is why it's an arduous process and it's a difficult process to amend the Constitution. Now, are there things I would change in the Constitution? Let's, let's, let's jump. This is a great segue because I want to talk about the worst amendments to the Constitution. Yes, I would repeal the 16th and the 17th amendments to the Constitution today. Because if you want to know, if you want to know why when we were talking about Article 1, Section 8 and federal power is limited and why is the government, federal government doing a bunch of things that they were never intended to do or supposed to do, it wasn't because in every way they subverted the Constitution. It was because with the 16th Amendment, it, for the first time, legally gave the federal government the ability to tax you as an individual, no matter where you go within the United States. And now it gave the federal government this huge pile of money. So when I look at the federal government, I say, wait a second, federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over education. The federal government's response is, oh, no, 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 we totally agree. We don't have jurisdiction over education, but we just took a bunch of your money. And if you want it back, you're going to do what we say. Yeah, that's we, we call that extortion in some areas, but that's exactly what that, that level of taxing authority has granted to the federal government. It essentially subverts the place that the state used to play in pushing back against federal taxing authority. And now the federal government taxes you individually no matter where you go. And by the way, it now taxes you on, you know, income is, is a pretty broad thing. It's not just income tax, it's capital gains. It's it's all of these other taxes that it's it's the death tax, right? It's all of these other things that the federal government is now taxing, and it gives them the ability to say, oh no, 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 we're not requiring you to do this. 
We're simply saying that if you don't, you don't get any of your money back. So if I come in and I rob your house and I, and I take your life savings and I say, no, 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 you don't got to let me stay in, in, you don't got to let me stay in this bedroom in your home. But if you don't, I won't give you any of this money back. We would all understand that that's somewhat of a coercive relationship. Okay, well, that's, that's what's currently happening with a lot of federal regulations. The way the regulation is written is written in such a way to where it's like we're, we're not imposing this by law, which is to say that we're not saying that you have to do it. We're just saying you don't get your money back if you don't. Well, as I think it was, uh, was it John Jay uh, that said, the ability to tax is necessarily the ability. John Marshall. John, no, I don't think it was Marshall that said it. I think it was Joseph Story. Joseph Story said the ability to tax is necessarily the, the ability to destroy. I think it was story. He's looking me up right now to make sure I'm right. Um, and that's absolutely true. If, if I don't have the authority to tell you how to live your life, but I have the authority to take your money. And if you don't live your life the way I say, you don't get your money back. Do I have the authority to tell you how to live your life? All right. So that that's, that's why I would say the 16th amendment gone. The 17th amendment is the uh, popular election. Of, it was John Marshall. It was the power to tax is the power to destroy. I was now, wrong. Christian here's was right. what, People don't understand the context in which he said it, though. He was writing in McCullough versus Maryland, where yeah. the state of Maryland had been uh, trying to tax the the central bank or a branch of the central bank because they did not want central banking yeah. in the state of Maryland. And so this came to the Supreme Court. And um, lo and behold, John Marshall, because he was a federalist and he was a big government type of guy, he ruled against it. Right. He said that Maryland does not have the ability to tax these branch banks. And the reason he said so was because, quote, the ability to tax is the ability to destroy. Now, everybody's looked at that since then and they've they've said, oh, this is the problem with taxation. He agreed, but he was saying this is the problem with the state trying to push back against the federal yeah, government central yeah. bank. So it's yeah. not really we the don't same like the, thing. We, the, the statement's true. We don't like the context. Yeah. In which he the used reason it. that he said that was is because he wanted to preserve the bank. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's I, I could have swore Joseph Story said something similar. But anyways, uh, you're right. Um, so that again, I, I would get rid of the federal income tax. Uh, that doesn't mean the the federal government wouldn't have any sort of taxing authority. They clearly would. Now a lot of people look at that and be like, oh my gosh! But if you did that, the federal government wouldn't be able to do, you know, seventy eight billion dollars in 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 education spending, and it wouldn't be able to run Social Security. Okay. Let me just point this out. Think of all the quails that are that we wouldn't be able to get high on cocaine with. Right, right. Here's the thing I want to point out. Just because the federal government isn't spending the money doesn't mean the money isn't being spent. Right? It, it could be spent by the state. Or better yet, it could be spent by the individuals that earned it on a whole variety of productive activity, whether it was engaging in commerce, charity, or whatever else. People have this idea that if the federal government doesn't spend it, the spending goes away. No, it doesn't. It just gets spent by people that are actually a lot closer to the people that it's being spent on. Whether it's the individual themselves spending on what's best for them and their families, or it's a local or state government spending it, which is a lot more interested in the, in the, in the concerns of what's going on within its jurisdiction than the federal government ever will be. Like I, I look at this and it just boggles my mind. I want to look at people and I'm like federal government spending all this money is an absurdly inefficient way to actually do it. Even if you agree with government spending like this level, I don't, but even if you agree with this level of government spending, you never want it spent by the federal government. You'd want to spend state or locally in most there, situations. There would be a lot fewer spending projects. Yes. Next, so, so federal, federal popular elections, okay, 17th Amendment, popular election of senators. This is the one that um, I think really gutted state power within the legislature. The Civil War yeah. dealt a crippling blow to states' rights, and the 17th Amendment killed it yeah. completely. The, 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 it used to be that states, that your senators, 
um, were elected by your state legislature. Now, people say, well, isn't that undemocratic? Again, understand what we're yes, talking about. that's the reason. Understand <laughs> what we're talking about here. Democracy is not synonymous with good and noble and wonderful and beautiful, right? Democratic processes may be a necessary component to freedom. They are not a sufficient one. The whole purpose of the Senate was to ensure that state interests were also represented at the federal level, not just popular interests. And so the idea was that the the Senate worked as a hedge against overwhelming federal authority at the expense of the states. And so the state legislators electing the senators, again, you still elected your state legislatures, right? You still elected your state reps, but then they elected someone that they thought was going to do a good job of representing the interests of the state. And that's why it was so important. And that's why I think the, those are two amendments. So to answer your question, would I adjust the constitution? I would definitely adjust it by getting rid of those two things. The other thing I might do, but I, I, I would I would certainly adjust the wording of certain things within the Constitution, maybe on the Second Amendment to make it a little bit more clear. But I, I will say this. While I would accept an opening of the 16th and 17th Amendments for repeal, I, I would be very, very hesitant to open up other portions of the Constitution for amendment process um, because I would be scared to death on on how they would screw it up. Well, like you I'd, could do I'd, it without I'd a rather, convention of states. I'd, no, I know that. I'd rather we have what we have than... So, again... We could go through a process. There, there's definitely amendments that would be, I think, beneficial to the Constitution. Um, and, I, and I think the, the best way to do it is usually through a bill submitted through Congress where it goes through Congress, has to pass with two-thirds majority, then it goes to the state legislatures, two-thirds of the state. States need to pass it, then it can get ratified. Um, there's also an Article 5 convention. That we've never had. We, we've had threats of an Article 5 convention. Yeah, but we've never actually had yeah. one. And the yeah. reason why is because a lot of conservatives are heavily divided on... Oh, conservatives on, are, are bitterly divided on, on the value of an Article 5 convention. And, and the objections to it are... I know many people that are very opposed to it because they feel like that there's no mechanism through... Unless you had another amendment that clarified how that process works. Again, it gets into how certain things aren't, aren't particularly worded. We, we've seen examples of... Like, like what we do not want is what they've done in a lot of South American countries yeah. where they call a constitutional convention to, to, to fix some problem. And then the socialists win all the elections and then they come in and they say, oh, now we're going to have a, a, a right to ever other people's property and we're going to confiscate industries and, yeah. and redistribute the wealth and impose a Marxist Leninist system. Like y you do not want that. They're in the process of, of doing stuff like that in many South American countries. If you want to look at the political chaos right now that is taking place in Peru and Chile, these are two countries right now that are in the process of trying to amend their own constitutions. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it's like street violence at this point between the left and the right over this process. There, there is a, there, there is something to be said for making the constitution uh, again, um, not, not overly, not overly burdened with with a bunch of stuff that isn't necessary and, and keeping it limited and enumerated and, and quite frankly small. Like you, you don't you don't want it to be governing every every little thing. Nick So wait, I, I got a couple questions okay. here. I got it. Scott the uh, Kelt asked question. If one were to introduce an amendment for term limits for state representatives in the federal government, would it be more effective at the state or federal law? State. Um, it, the federal government is not supposed to be determining or dictating uh, term limits for state legislatures. That that would be considered a, a, I think a massive federal overreach. So if you do want term limits, I would do it at the state level. Now there's, look, I, I've, I've signed on for uh, term limits at the, at the federal level. Um, here's what I'll tell you about term limits. It is not the end all be all. 
I, I think there's benefits from it. There's also problems with it. The, I think the benefits outweigh the problems. Christian disagrees with me on this. But I, I would say that if I had my ideal, I'll put it this way. I, I don't think I can get my ideal, so I'll settle for term limits on Congress. But here's here would be my ideal. You win a term limit Congress, you'd turn them back into a citizen legislature. I would much prefer that. Most of your states are citizen legislatures, with the exception of, I think, four or five that are full-time, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, California, uh, maybe New York. I can't remember. Most of your states are citizen legislatures, which says that they go to their state capital, they legislate for usually a, a small or limited amount of time, and then they go back to their real jobs and their real districts, and that's where they live. Like in, in Virginia, I'm in session, which means down in Richmond, for 60 days during even years, because those are our biannual budget years, and 45 days in odd years. That's it. Monday through Friday, we legislate. We take the floor every day. We, you have the veto session, though. We we, we do have a veto and session. Every now and then a special we, session. You come back for one day in April in order to uh, consider governor's vetoes and amendments. And then it, we can be called into special session, right? But normal practice is I don't spend more than 70 days a year down in Richmond, right? So not even a full three months. And guess what? We, we have roads. That system works fantastic. We, we have roads and we have police departments. And we, it and we turns used out, to have that at the federal level. Yeah. It turns out you don't need legislators sitting around um, you know, that long, just constantly in, in session. Now, obviously, with the federal government, they go back and forth between their districts. and, and But I, I think it's horribly inefficient. I think it's ineffective. Um, so I, I would go, not to mention the fact that if you move to a citizen legislature, you would have more people that self-selected to leave early. They, they, you'd have fewer people making it a career, in my opinion. And um, to give you an idea, in Virginia, this election year in Virginia, we are going to have roughly a 40% turnover in the House of Delegates due to a combination of retirements and redistricting. So I, I've, been in, I've been in the House of Delegates eight years Next year will be my ninth if I'm reelected. I will have gone, when I first went into the General Assembly in 2016, I was 92 in seniority out of 100 delegates. When I go in next year, I'll, be, I'll probably be in the 20s. That is a high degree of turnover uh, that you are having within a state legislature, right? So the, the arguments against that term limits um, are usually the idea that if, if you have term limits, the bureaucracy will run the show, not the elected officials. I, I, my response to that is I think one of the reasons why the bureaucracy has grown so much is because we have career politicians. And, and if politicians understood that their job was just to go down there, do some things, and then go home, they would be less likely to give the government as much authority as they currently have. But that it, it's a debatable point. I, I don't really want to get into the debate over term limits, but Nick is right that he and I very much disagree. And and the the reason why is like I look at California as term limits. And that has not made things any better at all. Instead, it's created a revolving door for a political class to grow in size as people get into the legislature, sell their votes while they've got it, and then they get out and then they become lobbyists or they end up working for the government. And it just increases the size of the political class. It doesn't restrict their power. Yeah. But that's a whole discussion for another day. Nick, um, I, I know that we're at the two-hour mark, and so I, I, I know we got We got a couple more things to, to go over, and I, I want to get to as many questions as people have. So, like, I've got a question for you that I've been waiting to okay, ask um, that, that I wanted us to, and, and maybe some other questions can be related to yeah. this. Um, to, to just wrap up the discussion here before we just do do nothing but questions. I, I remember when I said earlier that like, it sounds like as we're reading through the constitution that like, we're just reading off a list of things the federal government has been violating. Like, like over and over and over again. 
we talked about, you know, how the federal government has the authority to coin money and maintain the value of money. They don't do that. Yeah. We talked about how Congress has the power to declare war. They don't do that. We talk about all of these different things, like how the necessary and proper clause relates to the foregoing powers, not any power. Yeah. They don't respect that. Like, there's, there's so many examples within the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, for that matter, that, quite frankly, the federal government just has no respect for. Do, 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 pretend doesn't even recognize that it, that it exists. And so it gets back into what I was saying earlier, that the left will say the Constitution is just a piece of paper. And increasingly, I feel like people on the right are coming to the conclusion that the Constitution is just a piece of paper. And I, the tone is different there, but... but it's for different reasons. Yeah, it's for the, different the, reasons. The left is saying it's just a piece of paper because they feel it stands in the way of their objectives. The right says it's just a piece of paper because they feel it's not protecting their liberties. Um, here, here's what I would say. I still think the Constitution has a, a great deal of, of not just legal authority, but moral authority. But I think over time, the, the problem has become where power has been increasingly centralized at the federal level. The federal government uh, is now spending, I think, over 78 or over 80 billion a year on on education. Right. And most people are like, well, isn't that a good thing? Depends what they're encouraging your children to be educated in. When, when a, a lot of people will look at uh, government-provided education is, isn't this a, a great way to increase literacy and all those things? And, and you, could, you can certainly argue that the time before that versus the time now with respect to literacy rates and things like that, that there's been improvement. Um, here's what I would argue, though. Do you honestly believe that the government controlling education to the degree that it currently does is going to educate a populace ready to hold their government accountable and keep it within its limited boundaries? Or do you think that they're going to get an education which encourages them to see the government as this overwhelmingly benevolent institution which provides them with education and food, right? Because we have free and reduced lunches and, and health care and all these other things. And, and government has all these good things and I get to participate in it. I get to be a part of it. And isn't that wonderful? And isn't that great? And isn't it noble? And isn't it just? And isn't this freedom? It's our democracy. This is the part where, again, I look at the problems that we've come into is in part is, I think, because we've allowed the we've allowed the the authorities, which can use force and coercion to achieve their objectives, to essentially run education in this country. And lo and behold, the government gives itself a big old pat on the back when it's the one telling your children how to view their government. Now, people can look at that and say it's conspiratorial. I don't care. Because it, it's not the first time in history we've seen the problems associated with government having this level of control over education. Um, the other thing I would say is that, uh, again, the, the progressive era within the early 20th century, I, I think, set a lot of these things in motion. And we've created growing dependency on government in general, but specifically the federal government. If, you're, if your livelihood, especially in retirement, because elderly people tend to vote in, in larger and more consistent blocks than any other demographic. If your livelihood is now dependent on the federal government, not because it had to be, but because the government had the authority to confiscate your earnings, put it into this account, and say, depend on us for your retirement. Right? If your health care is now dependent on the federal government, not because it had to be. Right? There's this myth that everyone was just dying in poverty and of sickness before the federal government intervened. Not true. Not true. But now, if your livelihood and your health care and your education is all dependent upon federal subsidies, well, you're going to be encouraged to not look too skeptically at the federal government insofar as you're dependent upon it. 
And that's never what the United States was supposed to be. Almost every government throughout history, people were either, you know, in, in uh, breaking poverty. And even then they were still dependent upon their government because either the government was the, the mechanism for which the poverty took place and then they, they gave them some sort of subsidy to keep them happy, whether it was the Roman bread dole, right, or, or it was the, the Soviet state where, oh yeah, we'll, we'll guarantee you health care and education and a place to live and a job. You just don't get a lot of say over any of those things. We'll tell you what it looks like and if you don't like it, well then you're an enemy of the state. Right? There, there's plenty of examples all throughout his feudal, feudal culture within Europe. Oh, no, 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 we'll give you a place to live and we'll make sure that you're protected. But if you leave this land, we'll butcher you and your family. And if you don't actually, if you don't effectively manage the crops, we'll, we'll kick you off and you'll starve to death. So I'm sorry, history is replete with examples of people being heavily dependent upon the government for their sustenance in one way, shape, or form. What was always unique about the American experiment was not just our system of government, it was the degree to which the government did not interfere in your life. The people that were desperately trying to get here were not desperately trying to get here because they'd be able to vote for someone. They were desperately trying to get here because this was a place where if you actually used your talents and your abilities and you worked hard and you saved and you made wise decisions, a government entity wouldn't immediately come in and confiscate it from you because you weren't born to the right family. That's what was unique. Now, that's not to say that the mechanisms for which we set up the federal government or, or the, the ideas that, that informed the establishment of our state governments. That's not to say that all that, too, wasn't unique in its own right and also important. But the most important takeaway from the way the Constitution was constructed was not, oh, good, now we have a federal government to take care of us. It was supposed to be, Oh, good. Now we have an incredibly small and limited federal government that's going to deal with a very set piece, group of things that is makes sense for it to deal with and overall provides us protection from things like foreign invasion so that we can engage in commerce, so that we can engage in educate, providing education and healthcare and all those various things within the marketplace of both commerce and ideas. But if you're going to transplant all of that to, well, the federal government's here to take care of me. And the way they're going to do it is by taking money for those greedy people over there and giving it to me because I'm more worthy. Why am I more worthy? Well, because I voted for the politician that told me I'm more worthy. And that person stole stuff from me. I'm not exactly sure how, but the person I voted for, and this is democracy and democracy is good, right? My democratically elected leader said they did. And now they're going to give it to me and I'm going to get my cut. And that's fair and that's just. And by me voting for them, I'm, doing, I'm not only doing something good for me, I'm noble. I'm far more noble than the person we're taking stuff from. Right? When, when society has been reduced to that sort of mentality, well, then I got news for you. Democracy is not going to produce great results. And it all goes back to what Adam said. Our constitution is made for a... a, a what is it? A, a moral, a, a moral and religious people. And it is totally unsuited to any other. When people lack the capacity for self-regulation, whether that be on a moral basis, whether it be on an economic or commercial basis, whether it be on a basic social interaction basis, when, when they lack that capacity or any sort of genuine foundation for why those things are necessary. And, and that all gets replaced to whatever our democratically elected leaders tell us well, then don't expect positive results. 
And that's the part that concerns me most is that when people look at the Constitution or when they look at the federal government, they're no longer looking at an entity which can be used for good or for ill. They're looking at an entity that they're going to use because it has the coercive power to take from others in order to give to them. And after all, you're the good people and they're the bad people. That's when the Constitution, that's when the Constitution, it's when a majority of people have bought into that lie that the Constitution isn't going to protect anybody. Because it's just a piece of paper. And it's a beautifully written piece of paper, but it cannot protect itself. Right? A piece of paper can't defend itself. Yeah. And that piece of paper is supposed to defend us. Like Montesquieu came up with this whole concept of, you know, the division of powers. And and many of the founding fathers, like James Madison, really emphasized the division of powers. We went through this in this episode, right? Federalist 51. Um you know, that, that, that you're going to have two divisions of powers, one between states and federal government and one within the federal government. These men thought that, that this is going to be the way that you restrain the Leviathan. But the problem is what happens when, first off, all the people that work within those branches all go to the same schools, all work within the same industries, all have the same worldview, all work together. Like, like what happens when the branches work together? to increase their power because the idea was is that each branch would jealously guard its power what happens when each branch collaboratively works to increase their own powers in conjunction with each other as we saw during the 1930s for example when congress passed a bunch of new deal laws fdr executed them and the supreme court was too cowardly to defend against them yeah and 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 when two branches gang up on a third branch or, or coerce it into compliance, let alone when all three branches work together, they can shred the Constitution. They can shred individual liberty. There was actually a question from um, the, the equipment operator guy um, that I think really gets to the heart of what you were just saying there when you were answering my earlier question, Nick. And, and he said, um, question, have you ever read Hans Hermann Hoppe's book democracy oh, the god, the god that failed i i'm embarrassed to say i haven't i haven't read it yet i have not read it yet but i have heard i i've i've, I've, heard good I've things. seen clips uh, like, like i've seen clips and quotes from it it's on my it's on my to-do reading list in fact i might end up just ordering it and start reading it because i've heard so much about it from so many places and i've seen you know, like I've, I've read little quotes from it well, it's, it's funny. The Wikipedia says, Democracy, the God that Failed is a 2001 book by Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, containing 13 essays on democracy. And, th and this is what Wikipedia highlights. Passages in the book oppose universal suffrage and favor natural elites. I, again, I, I, I haven't read the book, so I can't say whether or not I, I agree with the conclusions in it, but so it would be interesting. I haven't read it, but, but the synopsis that I've gotten is not that, oh, natural elites in the sense that, oh, some people are better than others, but more that, that again, the right, has has much more respect for hierarchy than the left although the left is deluding themselves because you see that when they take power they still create hierarchies right like it wasn't like when the bolsheviks took over russia that they created an egalitarian system no stalin was in charge yeah, <laughs> yeah. there was there it was very clear where power was emanating from that was a hierarchy right yeah and and so the argument that i i think he's making and that people on the right historically make is that Hierarchies are a natural component of nature. There's nothing evil about hierarchies. What's evil is when you create an artificial hierarchy where you're elevating people based on things that aren't meritocratic in nature. Yeah. Right? When you elevate somebody and you say, believe all women, yeah. right? Or you say, white people are bad or men are evil, like you see, 
shocker, there's an entire political movement in the United States that is built around attacking people based on their race or their skin color or their ethnicity or their gender and and saying those people are the bad guys, give us power and, and, and we will elevate you and punish them. Yeah, you're creating a perverse artificial hierarchy at that point. Yeah. A natural hierarchy is not one where it's just, oh, straight white men control everything. A natural hierarchy is one where meritocracy rewards successful, good, hard work. Yeah. And people who produce things will rise to the top, just like you see within an economic free market system. Well, the, the, like I said, na nature kind of abhors a vacuum. What we mean by that is when, when there is an absence of, of clear rules, which everyone understands and can operate by, something replaces it. And the rules could be good or bad, but something replaces it. We usually refer to this as like strongmen or things like that. The, the hierarchy is going to exist on some level. Now, it could be a hierarchy of ideas. Well, if the hierarchy of the idea is we want a society that rewards people that do productive work. Okay, well, then you can't punish the people for doing the productive work, and you can't subsidize the people that are doing the opposite of productive work. You can't do those two things because you're not going to get the sort of society that you want. But these are the conversations we're not allowed to have because people automatically draw up images in their mind of what those people look like, when in reality... That person should be able to look like anything, anybody. All right, we got a couple of questions here. Reminder said, uh, Nick, do you favor ideas of creating a, cons a constitutional formula for the size of the house? It's been set at 435 for going on a century now. Personally, I like the Wyoming or the cubed root. Great question, Reminder. I'm going I'm to read this right now. Just so everyone understands, the Wyoming rule asserts that our total number of representatives should be determined by dividing the nation's total apportionment population by the total population of our least populous state. Applying this to the 2020 apportionment population, our total number of representatives would be 573. The cube root uh, rule asserts that the ideal size of the House of Representatives is the cube root of the total population. Applying this to the 2020 apportionment uh, would have the rep representatives at 692. Uh, Bandit asked the question, any thoughts to restoring um, constitutional proportional from the 700,000 voters per representative back to the original 33,000. We would have thousands and thousands. Yeah. We would be like the Galactic Senate well, to, in to Star get, Wars. To give you an idea, <laughs> I, I'm so, um, yeah, a, a congressman is representing almost is close to a million people at this point. To give you an idea, in the House of Delegates in Virginia, I represent 80,000, and that's considered a, a very high number. Uh, so here's what, here's what I would tell you. I I think there's benefits to having the discussion. Like I haven't made up my mind yet on what I would necessarily prefer. And this is to answer reminders question. Um, I, I think it's interesting. Like I think the Wyoming rule is a Samaritan. I think the cube lo root laws is interesting. Here's what I would say. Um, you, you do get to a point where your legislature is so numerous that it, it can be kind of unruly itself. Um, however, how do you balance that with the idea that you don't want representatives so removed from their their constituents that they they can't effectively hear from them or represent them, I, I I really go back to the idea that I I think there's merit in some of these ideas and I'd certainly be open to a larger discussion on what that could potentially look like. My problem is I like a lot of these things I don't know that it actually gets to the root cause of the problem that we have, especially at the federal level. Um, I, I think that has more to do with how people that are going to the federal government actually see the duties and responsibilities once they're there. Um, and, and I don't know that adding more people necessarily improves that. It could. It could, right? Uh, I just, I don't know. So that, that's why I haven't spent a great deal of time thinking about it. But I, I do think it's interesting, and I, and I do see the merit. I do see the merit on representation closer uh, to, to the people that are actually going to be, um, that you're representing. Uh, but again, I, I, think, I think that's better served by keeping the federal government within its proper limitations. And 
making sure that your representation at your state and local level that that's one of the I have these like four rules that I go through when I look at a bill. The first rule I always ask is, is it constitutional? And for me, that means not only the U.S. Constitution, but also the Virginia Constitution. Like, is it constitutional? Because if it's not constitutional, no matter how good the idea might me might be, you haven't authorized me to actually address it. So that's the first question. Second question I ask is, um, is this a legitimate function of government? So some people look at a legitimate function of government exclusively based off of like what their state constitution says. I don't. I look at legitimate functions of government as I'm very, very skeptical of government power. And so when government is dealing with what I call involuntary human interactions, fraud, theft, murder, rape, like these are things where I see a very legitimate uh, role for the government to come in and, and adjudicate contract violation, right? I see the legitimate role. Other things I'm more skeptical of government involvement. So I have a higher threshold for legitimate functions of government. The third question I ask is what is the appropriate level of government to deal with the issue? And again, that's one where I look very, very stringently at Article 1, Section 8 of the federal government. I look at state authority within Virginia. I look at local authority. And then I also ask myself, where would this, where would this problem more effectively be dealt with? Because one of the big problems with the federal government trying to deal with issues for which it's not suited to deal with is that you're imposing things on 330 million people. When I vote in Virginia, we're imposing things on 8.2 million Virginians, right? It, 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 and, and if you look at Virginia, just Virginia, you could easily break down six very distinct areas within Virginia that have different cultures, different ideas, different you know economic uh, interests. And things like that. So I always look at it as like, look, if this is a problem that you're bringing to the state level, the first question I'm going to ask is, could this, could this be settled at your board of supervisors? <laughs> like, is this, is this a state problem or is this a you problem? And if it's a you problem, how about you go deal with it? <laughs> like, let's not, let's not create a state issue. So I, I hope that, I hope that probably gives you more than you really wanted from that, but um, hope it was helpful. All right, another question here. Uh, when is Nick going to run for president or vice president? Let's hope never. Thank you, Reese. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope never. Um, let me see. We had a question from Caleb Breed okay. on the MTA channel. Yeah. Great member of our community chat. Caleb's He's, awesome. He says, would you consider being a theocratic fascist dictator like sweet, sweet daddy Walsh <laughs> aspires to be? <laughs> Uh, who is sweet? <laughs> Matt, oh, Walsh. Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh. Would you consider being a theocratic fascist dictator? A, a benevolent, a benevolent. You know, there's dictator. a joke about the. Maybe this is a discussion for a future time. There's this joke about the libertarian to fascist pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we're go, we're gonna do we're gonna have to do another episode on on fascism versus communism. But I I did a, I did a little clip the other day on this, and people were I said. You know, when somebody says, when somebody calls capitalism fascism and then goes out and immediately burns down buildings, attempts to intimidate their political opposition, and, you know, advocates for government speech codes and asks for more political control of the economy. Because apparently they don't know what fascism yeah. Who is. Who knew either. that Antifa had very fascist tendencies? Yeah, right. So it, it's just, yeah, but. No, to answer your question, no, I, I am not. Uh, yeah, no, no, no desire. You're to going play on the, the record for that. No desire to play the role of God. I'm going to go a hard no right now. No, 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 no not, not God. Fascist dictator. <laughs> well, theocratic <laughs> fascist dictator. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. All right. Last question from me. Yeah. This is coming from Sir of Potatoes, another great member of our community chat. Yeah. He said, "Should we call Hamilton something else, such as anti-central banking man?" <laughs> I, I kind of like the good Hamilton. Yeah, you know, I, I think it fits. You know, what's funny is that when we, uh, 
again, because of because you guys watching and sharing and because of our clips and stuff like that, uh, all of us now, when we when we go out every once in a while, we'll run into someone at the store or whatnot, where they'll be like, oh, you're the good Hamilton. Or they'll look at Tim like, oh, you're, oh, it's Queen of the Bees. I love Queen of the Bees. Um, we got to come up with a we got to come up with a, a slicker nickname for uh, Christian, though. Um, yeah. Doomed. <laughs> all right, so that that's gonna be that's gonna be a, an assignment for everybody watching. We got to come. We got the good Hamilton. Yep. We got the Queen of the Bees. We need a better. We call him our political prognosticator and resident historian, but that just doesn't roll off the tongue. It does not. We roll we off need the something like yeah, I, Captain Doom maybe. I, don't <laughs> I mean, I like the Viking title, but I we, do like the Viking title. We have to put some yeah. work in. We could call it uh, like Ragnar. <laughs> Doom, Doom Brock or something like that. Yeah. What, what's a what's what's the name of a very very pessimistic Norse god? We <laughs> that, man. Some of the some of the Vikings from from like the what like seventh to tenth century. They had some weird nicknames like yeah. Ivar the Boneless. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Rath has a question for Nick. What would his opinion be on a state using a monarchy as their state government? Well, if it's in the United States, it's unconstitutional. They're not allowed to do it. Like uh, one of the things that the federal constitution affords to all the people of the United States is that all states are required to operate as a Republican form of government. So that doesn't mean it has to exactly mirror what the federal government has, but it, it's generally been interpreted to mean that you have to have a legislature, a judiciary, and an executive branch, which are all separate. Um, and But again, the one case, most of them have bicameral houses. The only state that doesn't is Nebraska, which has a unicameral house. But it, it, would, be, it would be unconstitutional for a state to, to try to operate as, as a monarchy. Although I think Gavin Newsom is trying his, his day. I'll be honest. I'm going to take the controversial position and say I am not as opposed to monarchy today as I historically have oh my usually gosh. been. I'm this not. Is, and, and the reason why, not not monarchy in the absolute sense, but more, I personally, I, I'm, I'm increasingly feeling like the ideal form of government is something like a shareholder CEO type relationship where you replicate the way that, that a corporate board structure works and you apply a political system to that. And so in that sense, you could say that the CEO is effectively a monarch, right? The board appoints the CEO and then the CEO has many of the You want a constitutional monarchy. I, I want a constitutional with monarchy. With some real authority. In the with exam. teeth. Not, not right. a, not a, a, you know, Charles the third. Well, everyone say goodbye to Christian because <laughs> yep. in this particular dictatorial not, setting we, and we making do. the argument, <laughs> I know here's the thing. People say that, Oh, well that's not very libertarian. No, it's not very democratic. It can very much be very libertarian. Okay. All right. That that's, we, uh, we, we do have a few we, answers. We got, that a, came in. we got a few. We names. have, we have back to some more lighthearted. Yeah. Stuff. Uh, we have the dark scholar. That's interesting. Uh, Dr. Doom, that's from Harrison Morgan on the MTA channel. Well, Wrench had said Dark Scholar or Darth Scholar. That's yeah. This is all nicknames for Hamilton. I think I like Walking Contradiction. Walking. Uh, Mr. Hines is, is Gorthak the Blooded. <laughs> we, have, we have Ace of, uh, Ace of Spades saying multiple tabs, man. Caleb says owner, <laughs> owner of 300 tabs. Christian the Doom. Owner of 300 tabs. It really sounds like the Doom... Doom and gloom is sticking. I, yeah, it you know what's is. funny though is I, I'm I'm still I'm very optimistic long term. I'm just very pessimistic short and medium term. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I get it. Um, all right, let's go. Uh, we got some more questions coming in. We'll get to those. Um, I am gonna get a. I, well, there were some other things that we wanted to get to. We didn't get a chance, so I'm gonna go over them briefly while we wait for a couple more questions to come in because I I know we had some people. So Hamilton's monitoring those. 
Start monitoring questions. I, I am monitoring. I'll, 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 I'll right. take a look at them too. All right. So here's here's just kind of a wrap up of everything we talked about. So again, whole purpose of the Constitution was perceived weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. You had this battle between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. What they all agreed on at the time, at least when they were arguing for it, was that the Constitution was supposed to establish a very, very limited government with specific enumerated powers, that it was supposed to consist of co-equal branches between federal, uh, legislative, and judiciary, which is to this day unique in the world. All these other countries that people, oh, like, you know, Western democracies. They're very, very different from the United States. Again, Switzerland, you could argue Germany on some level, have more of a, a federated republic, but most of them parliamentary democracies, which means little to no distinction between the executive and the legislative, right? And that's one of the things we were trying to avoid in the United States. And the reason for that is because we put a greater emphasis not on government efficiency, but on the preservation of individual liberty. And that's very, very important. You want a really efficient government? North Korea, super efficient. He says, do something and something happens. And if you don't, you get eaten by dogs. That's efficient. I don't know that it actually produces positive results. So keep that in mind. Our government was established at the federal level to try to prevent tyranny while accomplishing certain limited tasks. It wasn't presented to be the most efficient thing on the planet. Secondly, we added the Bill of Rights. Why were those Bill of Rights added? Well, a lot of it was a compromise with anti-federalists because they said, look, we understand a proper reading of the Constitution might keep the federal government within its proper boundaries, but without these Bill of Rights, we're not ratifying the Constitution. And that's why you do get things like freedom of the press, freedom of religion, um, the right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, anybody that believes the Second Amendment only applies to a well-regulated militia has not read the second part of the Second Amendment. It is absolutely conveys an individual right and for good purpose. And that purpose was twofold. One was to protect a free state. And two, it was actually to protect against tyranny in general, to include tyranny, which could actually come from within, not just from without. And then we can we can go through the rest of the amendments, but there was obviously things that were put in there that today, like the quartering of troops, um, these aren't things that we've contended with in a long time, but a lot of it was based off of what you would call like the intolerable acts that came from England. They wanted to make sure that the federal government would not be engaging in the sort of things that King George was engaging in. Uh, the Ninth and Tenth Amendment to the Constitution certainly don't get enough attention. The Ninth Amendment specifically focuses on making sure that it is understood, that it is understood that because a right is not specifically conveyed within the Constitution does not mean that right does not exist. This, what I like to think of the Ninth Amendment is reiterating that it is the enumerated powers of the federal government. Right, it's the restriction is on the federal government. The Constitution is not there to restrict your freedoms and liberties. It is to restrict government power. And the Ninth Amendment kind of reiterates this. The Tenth Amendment also reiterates the proper disposition between the people, the state, and the federal government as well. All that's important. Obviously, you have other things too with uh, right of trial, um, Fourth and Fifth Amendments that are, are kind of conveyed to some degree your, your right to be safe and secure within your own uh, property and your papers. There, there's some people every once in a while will try to say, try to suggest that your right to an attorney, right, and in certain uh, cases with respect to uh, transgression of federal law, that your right to attorney is, is actually a positive right because after all, you have a right to an attorney. Let me explain why it is not. The only reason why you have a right to an attorney is because the federal government is attempting to prosecute you and de deprive you of life, liberty, and property. And so therefore, it adds this additional provision which says, if the federal government is going to attempt to deprive you of life, liberty, or property under certain conditions, it is obligated for you to be able to to, to provide for your defense. But if... if um, if a right to an attorney was a positive right, well, what that means is that you could walk down the street right now and be like, hey, lawyer, are you home? 
yeah, I, I have a right to your services, right? Because, you know, the, you know, no, that's not what it is. Um, it's a conditional right based off of the federal government trying to deprive you of something, okay? Um, we, we already talked about the worst amendments with the 16th and 17th and why, again, I think it gave a, a great deal of both inappropriate power to the federal government at the same time that it kind of did a lot to gut um, to gut federalism. And then overall, again, the kind of the argument that the Christian and I went through here a little bit was this idea is, is the constitution still relevant? Well, obviously it is still relevant as a legal document. I think it's still relevant also as, as a kind of a, um, on a moral level as well. I, I do believe that we still live in a country where the vast majority of people still pay some degree of homage. Like even the people that, even a lot of the people that believe that the, the constitution is far, far more restrictive than it should be. Look at what they do. They try to expand the general welfare clause. They try to expand the meaning of the interstate commerce clause. They try to expand the meaning of the necessary and proper the supremacy clause. They're still trying to operate within that document because they recognize that it has a great deal of popular support, at least as kind of like a, a even if it's just as a cultural icon. Now, if we want to preserve it as having legal authority, moral authority, as well as cultural authority, then we're going to have to do a much better job of explaining to people not only what exists and why it's there, but why it was originally put into place. What was the purpose? Again, the purpose was not to create an all-powerful federal government that was going to take care of you. It was to create a federal government with limited powers and then to create enough friction within that system in order to prevent it becoming tyrannical. And if we don't teach that part of why the Constitution exists, then you're, of course you're going to get people going, well, wait a second, isn't that undemocratic? Wait a second, if we got rid of this, wouldn't the government be able to do this so much easier? If we're not teaching the dangers of what government power represents along with the very, very limited benefits the government power can convey, well, then we're going to run into a real problem. And as Christian pointed out, at that point, the Constitution will just be a piece of paper because ultimately pieces of parchment don't defend themselves. It relies on people that actually believe in the concepts and the ideas and the laws which are set forth in them and are willing to operate within its proper boundaries in order to make changes when necessary, but ultimately to be able to agree to live in peace with one another guided by these documents and by these legal agreements. And if we're not willing to do that, well, then the only answer that comes from after that is violence. And I don't want that. I don't want that. But the only way we're going to get what we want is if we do teach a proper understanding of the Constitution, why it was put into place, why it's still relevant today, and do have an honest conversation at times on when it needs to be amended. But when it does need to be amended, let's follow the proper process. Let's not hand it over to a bunch of unelected judges to decide for us what terms mean when we're perfectly capable of deciding that for ourselves. Let's not do that. Let's go through the proper processes and, and ultimately... I think one of the mechanisms, I do think that we are, we are so far down the road uh, that I do think it's going to come to a point where there are going to have to be states that finally push back against federal overreach and say, we're not doing this. We are not doing this. We believe this is a violation of federal authority, and we're not going to permit you to do it. And is that going to cause a certain degree of, of crisis? Yes. But I think the crisis that can arrive from a, a peaceful pushback under those conditions, would be far more advantageous to the long-term prosperity and security, not only of the country, but of the individual liberty of our citizens, which is what all of this is supposed to be about, then I actually welcome that to come, and I hope it gets here as quickly as possible. I hope it's as peaceful as possible, and I hope it, it ends with a favorable resolution as quickly as possible, because I will tell you right now, I have some very definitive beliefs based off of my faith, based off of my experience, on, on what constitutes good and proper living. And I would never dream of attempting to impose that on you 
at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. But if we want to get back to a place where we understand that the proper way for us to engage in discourse and cooperation is within the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace of commerce, and that our primary mechanism for adjudicating problems should not be to immediately give politicians more power and control in the hope that they will somehow do a good job wielding that which we didn't trust to ourselves. All right. Thank you very much. I think we got a couple. Do we have a couple more questions? Uh, I think those are all the questions we have for right now. Uh, just real quick, if you haven't already, uh, be sure to go watch the full-length interview with Victor Marks on the Making the Argument YouTube channel. We published it yesterday. It's well, with, well worth your time. We would appreciate it. Yeah, I, I can't emphasize that enough. We did we did a little bit of a sneak preview on on this on the uh, Nick Freitas channel, but we wanted to put the full interview because we're going to start doing this over on the MTA channel. We've got more people that we're going to do interviews with. We're planning these out right now, and that's one thing that we wanted to make uh, available over on MTA. Because eventually, as this as this channel grows, and as we start to do other projects, and there's some other things in the wings that uh, you know eventually we'll be letting people in on, and we'll probably be initially letting in our, our community chat over on Circle and on those ideas and, and getting their feedback. But as we grow, we're actually going to have to split off various things into their own unique channels. And they'll always be kind of a central repository of certain things on the Nick Freitas channel. But uh, ultimately, what this is what this is really about is the different ideas that we're we're fighting for and we're trying to advocate. And it's it's not it's not about an individual person. It's supposed to be about the ideas uh, and how we all utilize those in, in order to, you know, again, uh, build in our, in our faith, build in our community, build in our families and as individuals. So once again, I want to thank you all for the dialogue. This was a lot of fun to go over. If you want to have some say on uh, future episodes, because this, I got to say right now, this all, I think we give them uh, credit in the beginning, but I want to give them a credit again. This actually came from, um, where's, I think this was Justin. Justin. Yeah, Justin over on our community chat on Circle. He's the one that asked us to do this dive. I hope we did a credible job. We tried to do a lot in two hours and 38 minutes. Uh, the Constitution's a topic that there's entire advanced courses on in college. So hopefully we, we did it justice and hopefully we, we answered the mail for Justin and what a lot of our other viewers were interested in. But if you would like to be able to have influence on what our next episode or our future episodes look like, Join our community chat over in Circle. Great place to do that. And we always look forward to the dialogue in there and the insight. Once again, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.